Welcome back, everybody. This is the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host today. Hope you're having a great day. Today, we are switching gears into the book of Daniel. We have a lot to cover, so I'll try to just jump into it if you are just joining us. The last couple of weeks, we've been really focusing on the Millennial Kingdom and everything having to do with the Millennial Kingdom. That's pretty much the main thing that divides various end times views. Um, So if you have been with us, then you've learned quite a lot, hopefully. Uh, But today we're jumping into the book of Daniel, and we're also going to be continuing throughout the book of Daniel. We're going to look at the book of Revelation. So we're really getting into the nitty gritty of all of Bible prophecy for the end times. Uh, But we, we unpacked a lot of the millennial kingdom because that was a big portion of end times views, and it's going to come back in various ways, but it's just not going to be the focus. So without further ado, today will probably be a longer episode. I don't know how long it will be. We have a lot of history to go through. Um, We're going to be looking at Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, uh, and that's in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. And basically, we're going to see how that is the key to unlocking the end times. And you'll see, hopefully in this episode, why I say that this is the key, because the prophecy of the 70 weeks basically predicts Jesus's life and ministry to the exact year. And so if that's the case, then there are some really very critical things that we can take from this prophecy because it's connected to all the other prophecies in Daniel. And because the books of Revelation and Daniel are very related, they mention the same types of time periods. We'll we'll go through a list of how they're correlated, but Understanding the book of Daniel helps us to understand the book of Revelation. So it all just kind of trickles out from the cross, ultimately, right? The cross is the center. Jesus' life is the center of the universe. And once we really understand the things surrounding his life, then everything proceeds out from there. So I'm going to post a link for an end times timeline that I made. And I want to just show it with you, show it to you really quick here. It's a Google document. Now, if you're listening to this, then... Um, Just check the show notes. I'll put the link for it in the show notes. It's a free Google spreadsheet that I made that I basically, you know, I'm a visual person and I like to see things visually (laughs) and I like to see them laid out on graphs and charts. And especially with Bible prophecy, it can get very overwhelming very quickly. So this is a, a graph, a sort of a timeline of all the different Bible prophecies. Now on the top, you have Revelation, you have the trumpets, you have the seals, you have the, the various beasts, you have you know various judgments that happen. Um, and then on the bottom, you have Daniel's prophecies, which are the vision of the statue. You have the various beasts that he has a vision of. You have the 70 weeks. You have the 2300 days prophecy. You have all these prophecies, and you can see how they all align actually quite nicely. And the interesting thing about this, we'll be referencing this over and over again. And again, it's just a tool for you to to see this all visually because it can be pretty overwhelming. But on the chart, you'll see where we are currently, which is a big red arrow that says you are here. And you can see all the things that have already happened. So again, it just reiterates visually that we are in the 11th hour if you really see all of this laid out. But regardless, we're going to be focusing on this chunk here, this little purple chunk of time, which is the 70 weeks prophecy. And you can see that that obviously already happened and how much other stuff has happened around that. And it's all interrelated. So it's it's really interesting, but that's going to be linked 
um, in the show notes in the description for this episode. So feel free to check it out. Feel free to share it. It's a free resource for you. Hopefully it's a blessing. Um, But I want to also look at why Daniel and Revelation are so related, because ultimately Daniel is the key to Revelation. So if we look at the comparisons between both of these books. So in Daniel, this is a this is a resource comparing um, both of these books together, and I'll link I'll link all this stuff as usual. And if we look and see, and this is for some reason there's a menu thing in here, but hmm. Uh, let's see if this changes. Yeah, I don't know if you can see it now, but okay. So the twenty seventh book in the Old Testament, that's Daniel. Revelation is the twenty seventh book in the New Testament. So these are some comparisons, compare and contrast. End times prophecy, Daniel 12. End times prophecy, Revelation 1, verses 3. Uh, Let me take a look here. Yeah, this is, okay. End times prophecy, Daniel 12, 4 through 9. End times prophecy, Revelation 1, verses 3. So we know they're both end times prophecies. Beast from the sea, that's in Daniel 7. Beast from the sea, that's Revelation 13. Daniel has beasts with ten horns. Revelation has beasts with ten horns. The beast blasphemes, which is in Daniel 7, 11, and uh, chapter 2. The beast blasphemes, that's in Revelation 13, 5 through 6. So you have both of these beasts, which are systems, and we'll look more at that, but they're systems and they're blaspheming God in various ways. The beast is destroyed. That's in Daniel 7. Jesus destroys the beast in Revelation 19. In Daniel 12, the book is sealed, but in Revelation 5, there are seven seals that are opened and the scroll is opened. So very interesting how these things relate to each other. Antichrist is in Daniel chapter 7 and 11. The Antichrist is in Revelation 11, 12, 13, 17, and 18. They both have historical fulfillment, and we'll we'll expound on this point in just a minute, but they both have historical fulfillment because they have time-based prophecies. And they're organized as two equal parts. You have Daniel's one chapter one through six and seven through twelve. They're both kind of these two sections in Daniel. And the same thing with Revelation. I don't know why this menu is here, it's kind of annoying. Revelation, you, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but basically re- organizational structure of Revelation has two equal parts as well. Revelation, first 10 chapters, and then you have 12 through 22, which are the second section of Revelation. And you have these themes of persecution for 1260 days, which is in Daniel 7. And Revelation 13, also you have a theme of persecution for 1260 days. So the conclusion from all of this is that basically we should look at Daniel and Revelation as very related texts. We should look at them as building on top. Revelation is building on top of Daniel. That's why I said understanding Daniel is really the key to the end times. And it starts with this whole prophecy of the 70 weeks because 70 weeks is a time-based prophecy. It has an exact time frame that it predicts the arrival of the Messiah, of Jesus' ministry and his life. So if that's the case, then... This unlocks everything else and why that's important because how we read this prophecy is absolutely critical to your understanding of Revelation and and what Revelation means when it's talking about 1260 days 
various beasts that come from various places. It's all very related to the books of Daniel and, of course, this prophecy. Now, we can read this prophecy, the 400, or I'm sorry, the 70 weeks, as historical. If you remember from the very first episode of this series, we talked about different ways that you read the Bible and their impact on your understanding of the end times. Now, one of those ways, which is not very popular anymore, is called the historicist interpretation, where we're looking at things being fulfilled throughout history, and time prophecies are seen as using the day-to-year principle, meaning if there's a a time listed in, in days or weeks, it's actually being listed in years. One day is a year. So a week would be seven years. If that's if if we're using the day year principle, now there's also other ways that you know it's read. It's literal, right? Is another way where it's actually you know seventy literal weeks or twelve hundred and sixty literal days for the other for the other time prophecies. And then you have more kind of this symbolic reading where the numbers don't really mean time. It, it they, they just stand for different things. They're they're not exact uh, time prophecies. So. Those are the main different ways of reading the Bible. As you can tell, they have very vast, vastly different consequences, vastly different ways of seeing prophecy. And it's very important because these things are dealing with what's going to happen. And so we should be accurate in our understanding. And I'm going to argue that dispensationalism and futurism, which we've hopefully shown you that they're false teachings in the last nine episodes or whatever it's been, by looking at the millennial kingdom and how the dispensational teaching surrounding that is just false and it's been influenced by the Jesuits and by people who want you to think in the future and to think in a worldly, fleshly way so as you don't see the spiritual realities that are happening and changing behind the scenes. But we'll get into more of that as we expand upon Daniel's beasts and the beast system and what all that actually is. And it's not some future charming guy that's going to walk into a physical temple being rebuilt because the temple is the church. It's the kingdom of God. It's the temple that Christ built with his body through his sacrifice. But we talked about all that in previous episodes. The point is this. Dispensationalism reads the 70 weeks as literal, right? It it reads it in in a way where you have the... Now, I'm going to actually, I'm going to put a caveat to this. Some of the things that dispensationalism reads are literal, like the 1260 days, which we will not get into in this episode, but it's related. So just keep all this in mind. It reads that as literal, okay, that these are 1260 literal days. But then the the 70 weeks are counted as years, right? And and there's a way of reading it to where the, the final seven years of this prophecy have yet to be fulfilled. And it's all tied to the Great Tribulation and the Rapture and all the things that we proved are false in the last nine, 10 hours, whatever it's been in the last few weeks that we've talked about these things. But we'll get into more of this and how the dispensational reading is just false and how it's not, it doesn't make any sense for several reasons. But the other way to read it is, again, symbolic and and that the 70 weeks are just a symbol of captivity or some other thing like the Babylonian captivity and how that's just really a symbol of a particular time frame of completion and all the things that we can use with numbers and make them symbolic. But are these things really accurate or are these prophecies specific? Are they specific time-bound prophecies that God intended for us to understand? And as a result, 
what does that mean if they are specific time-bound prophecies and they're connected to the other time-bound prophecies in Daniel and Revelation? What does that mean? Well, it means a lot. And so that's why this is the key to the end times. Now, the failures of these two ways of reading, the other two ways, so there's a historical way of interpreting things, and then there's the symbolic, and there's kind of the literal way of interpreting these prophecies. Now, the failures of these other ways of looking at things are pretty obvious. For the most part, amillennials, which again, my goal is not for you to identify with anybody. It's really it's really to use the Bible critically and write off things that don't make sense and believe the things that do. Now, amillennials, which believe that the millennial kingdom is right now, and I agree with that, hopefully I've done a good job in defending that idea in the last couple episodes and showing how the millennial kingdom is now because Jesus has to be king right now in order for him to be priest, for there to be a gospel, Satan is bound, all the things we talked about. But that doesn't mean I'm an amillennial. Amillennialism, one of the faults of amillennialism, some of these words are tough to say, one of the faults of these, uh, of amillennialism is that they see numbers and prophecy and and things in, in Bible prophecy very, very symbolic. So much so that they spiritualize everything where you can fit practically anything to anything. You, you lose sense of where you are in time. And I don't believe that God intended that. I believe that God intended, it's very clear that God is very specific when it comes to time and certain schedules and, and, and feasts and all these things throughout the Old Testament where he's given prophecies and commandments and things having to do with time. God is very specific. And so I don't think that we are that he intended for us to be in history and not know where we're at prophetically. Now, the other side of it is dispensational reading, which is very like literal and chronological and leads into so many different errors that we've hopefully talked about. But the attention is too much on the physical world. The amillennial position overemphasizes spiritual meanings where, again, you can't really tell where you're at. You can make anything mean anything. You use a lot of things like gematria and numerology, if you know what those things are. It's the study of numbers and their meaning, which it, it borderlines like divination to use these things and say, well, you know, the, the 70 years actually is seven times 10, which is completion times this. And it's really just symbolizing this, you know, very vague, you know, spiritual meaning. And it's it's really distancing you from the truth that these are actually things that were fulfilled and that were meant to be fulfilled on specific timescales. And you lose sight of where you're at in history, which I think is a very dangerous thing, because if you recall from the many episodes we've had so far, I think that one of the dangers in this end times, you know, wrap up of, of the world's history that we're heading towards very quickly. Remember that chart I showed you just now? We're, we're at the end here. We're at the very end. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Nobody knows. But we're at the 11th hour. And one of the dangers is that they will counterfeit a false Christ, a false millennial kingdom. If that's the case, then many people will be deceived because they aren't looking at the Bible prophecies in a way that would help them identify the beast, the deception, all the things that are coming in the future. If you think everything is spiritual and spiritualizing all these different times and, and important dates and and phases that have been given to us in Bible prophecy, then you are going to miss possibly the greatest deception of all time. So that's really important. 
the amillennial says that God isn't limited by precise dates. But actually, history and prophecy being fulfilled exactly is the exact signature of God. That's what proves to us that God has control over history, that he's the one who's predetermined all of it. He's the one who's omniscient. He's the one who's sovereign. It's the very fact that Bible prophecy does get fulfilled on time that proves to us that God's sovereign hand was behind it all. So I reject that position, and I hope that you do too. But again, if all the numbers were just symbolic, why bother to give specific time frames and time prophecies? There are so many time prophecies in the Bible. Some of them are literal, and like the 430 years um, prophecy of, of the Israelites being in Egypt, and some of them which are prophetic, as we'll get into in this episode, like the 70 weeks, which are symbolic for 490 years. And in future episodes, like the 1260 days, they're actually 1260 years. These are prophetic you know, uh, times that are designed to tell us specific things that are happening in history. So again, the answer here is to look at this historically, and we will look at it historically, and you'll be hopefully blown away. We're going to have a lot of reading, a lot of history in this uh, episode, but hopefully you'll be blown away, like I'm blown away, as to the miracle and the absolute genius of God and how all of this just comes together. It's really profound. It really, truly is when we study history. Now, the hard thing is that history it can be a little convoluted. It can be very um, detail-intensive. It can be challenging, right? So hopefully you have some notes to take, or if you don't like history, then hopefully you'll learn something today because it's truly fascinating. Even if you don't really study history, I think that coming to terms with how God has used history to fulfill his purpose so precisely only leaves us with more admiration and desire to worship God and to give him sovereign control over our lives. It's, it's truly amazing. But let's talk about this idea of the day-year principle. In the, histor- in the historical way of reading Bible prophecy, the historical method, where we see Bible prophecy as being throughout history relevant, and things are happening throughout history, what we use is a day-to-year principle, meaning, again, when there is a day, like 1,260 days, that's actually 1,260 years. And there's reason for that, because throughout Scripture, we see plenty of examples where God uses this same principle. So in Numbers uh, chapter 14, verse 34, God punishes the Israelites for basically giving a bad report and doubting him about the land. And so he punishes them with 40 years in the wilderness. And he says, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall show and you shall know my displeasure. So God is equating days to years in his punishment in numbers. Now in Leviticus 25 verse 8, where he talks about the year of the Jubilee, it, it says the same thing. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So very clear again that God is equating weeks and days and years as a system of keeping time. In Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, every year or every day that Ezekiel was was given was a 
equivalent for a year of judgment on Israel. In verse 4 it says, Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign to you a day for each year. So, very clear that all of this is is relating days and years one to another. Now, we also have parallelism, which is the idea of, of comparing one thing to another. And we see that in the Psalms, and it's Psalm 77, verse 5. I consider the days of old the years long ago. We see also in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Now, some may say like these last two examples I gave are maybe more poetic, but in either case, I think there's plenty of reason to see that using the day-to-year principle is justified. And as we'll see, not only is it justified, not only is it a, like we could say, okay, let's try this. It's not out of balance to try looking at prophecy through this lens, through the day-year principle. It actually works. It works profoundly well through history. And again, when we look at it through the lens of the 70-week prophecy and how we see that the 70 weeks are related to 490 years and how those 490 years sum up so perfectly everything to do with with what's in the prophecy and Jesus' life and ministry and you know, basically the transition of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, all these things align incredibly well to the point where it validates this principle even more and it makes you go on to other prophecies and look at them through the day-year principle, which then again leads you to realize who the real Antichrist is, who the real beast system is, and where you are in history. So all of this is related. It's all related. It's all really quite phenomenal how it's related. Hopefully, again, that chart that I shared with you and that I'll share in the, the description will be useful so you can see how all these things put on a timeline of history of the last you know 3,000 years or whatever it's been. It's really quite profound. It's profound to, to, believe, to see that we're living in, in this final period of history. It, it really is just mind-bending. But again, what about some of these exact prophecies? Like in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, you had the, the 40 years. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And the question is, well, is, isn't that supposed... If, if we're using the day-year principle and that's universal for all prophecies, then why isn't this, you know, whatever 430 years times 365 is, you know, however, you know, thousands of years that would be? Well, the, the answer is context. The answer as usual is context. These prophecies were fulfilled in the past, during history, during their time. The prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, remember that chart that we looked at in the very beginning that compares the two? They both have to do with the end times. Both Daniel 12 and Revelation, the first chapter of Revelation, it's all about the latter day, the coming day of the Lord, the, the end of time. Both of these texts have to deal with the end of time. It's Bible prophecy. It's, it's apocalyptic. It's not having to do with things that are historic that were fulfilled because the things that were historic and fulfilled are literally interpreted. 
When God says 430 years for the Israelites to live in the land of Egypt, that was 430 years. But when Daniel's given a vision, which is highly symbolic with beasts, you know, with, with leopards, with wings, I mean, these things are symbols. And so in that same context, when he's given a time frame, like 70 weeks or like 1260 days, these things are symbolic and used to mean years, not days. So it's the context that really matters. It's it's always context. And again, both of the books, Revelation and Daniel, are about the end times. Now, I want to share with you a way on how not to use this day-to-year principle because a lot of people have used this in some very poor ways. And I talked about this before, but it's this idea of the two creation accounts, the pre-Adamic age, the first earth age. If you have heard of any of these things, if you subscribe to any of these ideas, please go watch my episode on debunking these myths because they are really taking over uh, the alternative internet. You know, you have like BitChute is very popular for these types of things. And just people who are, I mean, I don't know, some of them, I question whether they're true believers or not. But either way, people who are reading the Bible and trying to fit a particular story and narrative that just ventures off into new age sci-fi nonsense. It really is. And I'm going to give you an example. So the pre-Adamic age, we're not going to get into this because it's a huge can of worms, but I highly encourage you to go watch that episode that I created on it, just debunking this whole thing. But there's people who believe ultimately that there was some age in the beginning of the earth where there were thousands and thousands of years, whether they're trying to reconcile evolution to what the Bible says, or they're trying to find some other mystical things in there. They say that basically the the days of creation were a thousand years, right? So when, when God says that he created the earth in seven days, that each of those days was actually a thousand years. And they use, for example, 2 Peter 3.8, where he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And they also use Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. Now, these two things are related. Peter is quoting Psalm 90, I believe. And if you read the context if you read the context of Psalm 90, it's not its not like the other things where we, where we show that God is equating a day to a year and a year to a day, where he's obviously saying, this is how I'm judging this situation, okay? So there's a principle there that we can use. It's not doing that. Psalm 90 is, in context, it's talking about God's timelessness, right? Time is like irrelevant to God in that sense. He's eternal. He's not created. He lives forever. And so a day with him is like a thousand years and a thousand years is but a day. Like time is meaningless. It's not something we can understand. So we try to put it into these limited ways of language. It's not saying God says that every time he's talking about days, they mean a thousand years. Okay. And I can give you simple proof for that with this whole pre-Adamic age, first earth age, two creations. My goodness, there's so much misinformation with these uh, poor, you know, you have just poor people who are teaching the Bible to suit their own agenda. And I won't, again, I won't get into it. I'm not going to mention names because I don't want to further their deception. But the point is this, Adam rested with God on the seventh day. Okay, so do the math very simply. You don't have to be good at math for this. The Bible says that Adam lived to about 900 
92 or something like that. He was less than a thousand years old. Okay? So if Adam was created on the sixth day and he rested with God on the seventh day, because the seventh was the Sabbath and everybody rested, then he would have died over a thousand years old. Do you see how that works? If he would have rested for, with God for a thousand years. But the Bible says that he died at 900 something years old. So it's impossible for the days to be a thousand years. Meaning that these references that people use to justify this idea are incorrectly used. They're, they're ignoring the context, which is poetic. It's, it's poetry. It's, it's trying to teach something about God in a symbolic way. It's not saying this is what God is using for days and years. So this is how you should not use the day-to-year principle. Again, context is everything. It's very clear that God uses the day-to-year principle in all those situations that we showed with the Jubilee year, with the punishment on the Israelites, uh, with judgment when he had Ezekiel you know, basically prophesy, right? So what was Ezekiel doing? He was prophesying the judgment of Israel. He was creating a, a visual prophecy. God does that all the time, like with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac was a visual prophecy. It, ha- it actually happened, but at the same time, it was also prophetic of what Jesus would do on the cross. It was a type. In the same way, Ezekiel was lying on his sides for various days as a prophecy of what's going to happen to Israel and Judah. So if God is using the day-to-year principle as a prophetic tool, then we're justified in looking at prophecies that are visions, that are symbolic, to use this principle as well. It's not saying that every time there is a day listed in the Bible, it means a year or a thousand years. It means that the context is a prophecy, and that's what we're looking at. So, historicism is the best way to read prophecies, and it's done through the day-year principle. It really is. The Bible is written, I believe, that all generations can profit from the things written inside of it. Not so just the past, which is preterism, or the very far future, which is futurism, right? Preterism and futurism, which are very common ideologies, and they're false, They look at only the past or only the future, meaning that you have this gap of time, thousands of years, where Bible prophecy is literally irrelevant. And I don't think that's the case. Again, if you look at the sheet that we created, that timeline, you'll see that Bible prophecy is relevant throughout every time period in history. And that's the beauty of it. There's always something going on. And by understanding it, you understand where you are in history. And God has been gracious enough to give us clarity on what's happening ideologically, theologically, physically, politically in each of those time periods so that we know where we're at. Now, it doesn't change the fact that we have to cling to Christ. It doesn't change the fact that we have to evangelize. It shouldn't change the fact that you should still study things like apologetics, theology, typology, the Trinity, all these things that are so important. So again, very first thing, one of the very first things I said in my first episode of this series You can get carried away with end times studies. Don't get carried away with it. You know, study enough to where you aren't deceived, but leave room for other things too. So that's why historical interpretation, I think, is valuable because we can learn and see where we are in history so that we aren't deceived by things like dispensationalism or preterism. Preterism believes that everything happened already. 
Now, think of it this way. If you believe that everything happened already, then there's nothing to worry about, right? There's no antichrist. There's no great falling away. There's no great deception at the end of the age. There's no false Christs. That's a very dangerous position. That makes you completely open and vulnerable to deception. So we have to be very careful, but Revelation and other prophecies that are related to Daniel, like the 1260 days, are all through the same lens of the day to year principle, which means a lot. And as you'll see, hopefully in the coming episodes, it makes a huge difference. So with all that out of the way, let's get into the 70 weeks of Daniel. There's a lot to cover, and I thought about putting it in multiple episodes, but I really don't want to do that because there's just so much of this is related. I want you to get all of it in one episode. So we'll see how long this goes. But the 70 weeks of Daniel is a is a prophetic timeline of events that basically culminate in the arrival of Jesus on the scene with his ministry, his death on the cross, and then basically the end of the gospel being carried by the Jews and being moved out into the nations. It's a, it's a complete package, and it's fascinating how it all comes together. It shows a lot of things, again, like the end date for when the Jews would no longer be the chosen people, right, to carry the message, and it would go out to everybody. And it also gives us a correct understanding of other prophecies. Because again, once you understand this prophecy, the 70 weeks, correctly, you'll see very clearly what the other prophecies in Daniel, like the 1260 days, the 1290 days, they're all related, uh, the 2300 days, and therefore uh, the prophecies in Revelation. It's all just so well tied together. But it also destroys dispensationalism. If we can really hash this out correctly, as you'll see, dispensationalism, the interpretation that dispensationalists use, makes no sense. And hopefully by now, if you've watched the previous episodes, you will not be surprised because dispensationalism is a deception, as you hopefully have learned. But one thing I want to note is this. When you're looking at Bible prophecy, in Daniel especially, try to use the King James Version. Now, I'm not one of those people that's the King James KGV only type person. I don't think that's, you know, there are plenty of great translations. However, however, when it comes to Bible prophecy, especially the book of Daniel, I'm going to show you a few examples where if you use something like the ESV, which is a great translation for most most cases, you can easily get a very different understanding because of the way it's translated. So this is this is the point. Make sure you use KJV, and that's what we'll look at today. Now, many people today, especially dispensationalists, believe that the 70th week of this prophecy, remember there's 70 weeks total, that's the time period, is in the future. Okay, and we'll, we'll expand on this point. Again, that the 70 weeks, if, if the day... If the days are years, then the seven, this final week, the 70th week, is a period of seven years that hasn't happened yet, according to dispensationalists and futurists. And this seven-year period is the Great Tribulation, the rapture is going to be before that, yada, yada. But we proved way back that there is no rapture, not in the sense of before a tribulation or anything like that. So that should, at the very least, be suspect to you when you hear that. And... The question is this, if the 70th week of this prophecy is in the future, 
and dispensationalists agree that it, the rest of the prophecy has already been fulfilled, then it makes no sense why there would be a gap of like almost 2,000 years between the last 69th week and the 70th week. Makes no sense because there's no prophecy in the Bible anywhere where there's a time given and then within that time period, there's a huge gap that's even bigger than the time period itself, if that makes sense, right? So like the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, it wasn't 70 years, but then one of those years was separated from the rest of the 70 by like 500 years or something. It was a continuous period of time. And so there's no prophecy like that in the Bible where there's this gap of time. And so to suggest that the 70th week has yet to be fulfilled, it's a deception. And it's something I strongly encourage you to to let go of and to study harder if that's what you believe because you've been lied to. And hopefully I can support you today to see the truth and see that you have been lied to because this is a very popular teaching. The idea that there's a future 70th week and that's when the Antichrist will come and all this other stuff. The Antichrist is already here. It's the papacy. It's the beast system. And it is coming back as we will explore deeper and deeper in this series. But it's not some charming guy that's going to walk into a physical third temple that's being rebuilt. That all, all that stuff is nonsense. It really is, and we talked about it previously. But what is the context of this prophecy? Well, in Daniel 8, Daniel was given a prophet, a huge prophecy of 2300-day prophecy, which, again, if we're using day-to-year principle, it's 2300 years. Very big slice of time. And... That vision included things about Medo-Persia, about Greece, about the Roman Empire, about various beast systems. I mean, it's it was a large chunk of time. And that was given to him in Daniel 8. So let's read that really quick. This is verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? Now I'm going to actually switch to KJV here really quick to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. Verse 14, he said to me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So it's 2,300-day prophecy. But then later in Daniel, a couple verses later in verse 26, and the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Therefore shut up thou vision, for it shall be for many days. Again, a marker that this is for the future. It's, a, it's an end times prophecy. Not something like, the Israelites living in Egypt for 430 years. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So Daniel didn't get his the vision that he, he got. He, he got this huge vision. He's overwhelmed by it, and he doesn't know what to make of it. Now, later in, ch- in chapter 9, the next chapter, He's reading through scripture and he recognizes that the time of Israel's captivity in Babylon, the 70-year time, is coming to an end. It's coming to an end, and so he prays to God to have mercy. And again, another indicator that Bible prophecy is exact. And the people of Daniel's time, Daniel included, believed in exact time prophecy. They didn't think that God was giving them a symbolic you know, seven times 10 or whatever. They believed in a exact time period. And so he was recognizing that time is coming up. And so in Daniel 9, it opens with him praying to God to have mercy and to basically have clarity. 
Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years, whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And so he's praying for guidance, for clarity, for mercy from God. And we see later in chapter 9 that Gabriel brings an answer. This is verse 20. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in my prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, right? So the one who God delivered the, the original vision through, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. So he gives, so the con, what is the context of all this? And why is all this important? Well, Daniel's 70th week, which is what Gabriel's about to explain now in Daniel 9, is not separate from the 2300-year prophecy. Do you see how all this ties together? The 2300-year prophecy, which we're not going to get into in this episode, it's it's a combination of other things. It's got uh, a 1260-year prophecy contained in it, 1290-year prophecy, all these time prophecies, but it's a long period of time. And this chunk of time, the 70 weeks, which was given to Daniel in that whole prophecy, is part of this 2300-year prophecy. It's a chunk of time within that bigger slice of time. So the point is this. You can't look at this prophecy, the 70 weeks prophecy, as separate from the 2300-year prophecy. If you're going to interpret this prophecy through the day and year principle, meaning the weeks are actually a week is seven years, so a day, year, a week, seven days, seven years, meaning 490 years. If you're going to do that type of interpretation, then you can't go back and say, well, the 1260 days is just literal days. This is what dispensationalism does. Do you see the problem? You can't change systems. It's the same prophecy. This is just one chunk of it. And accurately, it should be read through the day-year principle. As you'll see, all this stuff lines up perfectly with history. It's really quite phenomenal how it does. You have to do your digging, but it does align, It does line up. And the question is, if it lines up, then what does that say about the other time prophecies? It says that they are year prophecies. And if Revelation ma- mirrors these prophecies, again, there's a lot of similar- similarities. Beast with 10 horns, 1260 days of persecution, same stuff. Then it's talking about a longer period of time. It's not talking about this futurist three and a half years, 360 days prophecy that dispensationalists use and people who are looking in the future at literal things are using. That's why Daniel 70 weeks is the key to the end times because it's tied to the greater 2300-day prophecy and the 2300-day prophecy is what John and Revelation piggybacks off of and gives multiple other dimensions to through the 12, the two witnesses, you know, the other the beasts of the sea and, and other things that we'll cover, not in this episode, but it's all it's all related. And so you see why this is the key and why you can't take it out of context and separate it from this prophecy. So you have to realize that the 70 weeks prophecy is related to the 2300 day prophecy. So that's that's what we're talking about. And again, in that in that little time sheet, if we look at it really quick, 
Um, where is it at? Yeah, if we look at this little chunk of time, this chunk of time, and again, if you're listening to this, then check out the <clears throat> the the link I've put for the uh, Google Sheet where you'll see all these things listed in a visual way. And on the bottom, there's a timeline, and on the top, there's Revelation. On the bottom is Daniel. On the bottom, you'll see the first item, which is the 70 weeks. It's like this purple little rectangle. And then that's part of this longer time section which includes the 1260 days, the 1290, the 1335, all these things we'll get into, which they're all related. It's all talking about the same thing. But that's the point. We're, we're talking about this little chunk of time that's part of this bigger chunk of time, which you can see coincides with some of these other big chunks of time. Hmm, I wonder if they're all related. The answer is yes, they are related. So let's get started. The, the, the verses in question are... Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. So we're going to read these, and then we'll, we'll break them down. 70 weeks. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of the sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. 26. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end the war desolations are determined." And to the end of the war, desolation is determined. Verse 27. Some of this language is, is a little difficult, but it'll make sense. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Gosh, what a controversial, controversial verse. We'll unpack it. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. A lot to unpack in this. We're going to go verse by verse. But verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Obviously talking about 70 weeks out of the 2300 days. So they're cut off from the 2300 overall prophecy. This 70 weeks is determined for a particular purpose and Gabriel explains that purpose going forward. It's about the Messiah. Now look at what what it says here for these qualifiers, what, what happens during these 70 weeks? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. There's a, there's a lot of language you're having to do with Jesus. Who on earth, other than Jesus, put an end to sin? Who on earth other than Jesus made a reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that was Jesus. Now, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, what does that mean? Well, Jesus' arrival fulfilled the law and the prophets. And if you remember from the previous episode when we talked about the church and the kingdom, the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. After that, it was the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, Jesus brought the new covenant, the, the good news, the gospel. Up until then, it was the law and the prophets. But after that, there was no more need for them. 
That's another reason why, you know, this whole thing of modern day prophets is just nonsense. That the anointing of prophets ended with John. There is no more prophets being anointed. Why would there be when we have the full revelation given to us by God himself? If you think that we need prophets today to tell us what, what God is thinking, then that means you don't believe the Bible is the complete and inerrant word of God, and you don't believe that the work of Jesus was complete. If, if Jesus' work was complete, we don't need prophets. And so this whole idea of, of sealing up the vision and prophecy is exactly that, that Jesus came to put away to have everlasting righteousness, to put an end to sin, and to seal up the vision of prophecy. That's it. It's done. The, the truth is finally revealed in Christ. And the last part says, anointing a most holy. And we know Jesus, we, we looked at this in the episode on the temple. We know Jesus said that his body is the temple. He's the cornerstone. The temple is a spiritual reality. Okay, temples were never anointed. But Jesus was anointed by John the Baptist. And his body became the temple, the body of Christ, the church, the kingdom, all these things that we looked at that were equivalent with one another in the previous episodes, right? So it's a spiritual reality that Daniel is talking about here. Now, Daniel at the time doesn't fully understand this because he's an Old Testament Jew. They, they didn't have the full revelation of the Trinity, of the gospel, of all these things, but they were being given things in terms that they could understand and they were writing them down. So... Anointing a most holy doesn't have to do with anything other than the spiritual temple that Christ came to create, which is the church through his body. Now let's look at verse 25. I want to compare this to the ESV so you see what I'm talking about. Now I'm going to read it first in KJV, but then I'm going to look at English Standard Version. So this is verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall and even in troublous times. So what do you get out of that? What you get is that from the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem, you have seven weeks and 62 weeks, and then the Messiah comes, right? So there's 69 weeks from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, that's 69 weeks. Right? Let's read it again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, unto the, Messiah the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And then it tells you what's going to happen in that time. So seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, 69 weeks total. But in the ESV, look at this, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Uh-oh. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. This makes no sense. This is this is like a totally different timeline. It's saying that basically from the going out of the word to restore build Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, there shall be seven weeks. That's not right. That doesn't align with anything. That's 49 years. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. So you see, this is the problem. And again, ESV, I love the ESV. I use ESV most of the time. But when it comes to Bible prophecy, you have to be very careful. You have to really like look and see how different translations word things. You should do that in general, but especially for this. Now, 
we know that from the, so we've now established a timeline in this 70 weeks. In the 70 weeks, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to when the Messiah would come, there would be 69 weeks. Now, 69 weeks, again, using the day-to-year principle, if a week is seven years, 69 times 7 is 483 years. So that's the time period we're looking for, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the arrival of the Messiah. You're looking for a period of 483 years. Does that actually come true or not? And we're going to see it does. And of course, you have one week left, which is the last seven years of this prophecy, which dispensationalists say it's in the future, but actually it's already happened. It's a continuous prophecy and it's 490 years that's continuous. There's no break in it, but we'll we'll unpack that in a little bit. So the, the chunk that we're talking about here is 483 years. Now, there are four decrees historically that have happened surrounding Jerusalem. There is a decree by Cyrus in 438 BC when he uh, basically conquered Babylon and he decreed that the Jews, you know, they can rebuild their temple. That was a decree in 538 BC. Then you have a couple years later, Darius decreed, made another decree in 520 BC. We'll look at all of these in detail. Then you have Artaxerxes, who had two decrees. One of them was in 457 BC, and he had a second decree in 444 BC. So this is where, like I said, there's a lot of things to consider in history because you have to do your research. A lot of people say it's one year versus another, and then that leads to all sorts of interpretations. Now, before we look at that, what is the meaning of restore? That's something we should ask because that's significant. In 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 34, Restore, I'll, I'll actually use the ESV for this, but restore is about bringing full possession to the owner. And we'll see also in another part in Kings earlier where restore is about rebuilding and bringing back the socioeconomic, political status of a place. That's what restore actually means. And so in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 34, it reads, And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. So restore means to restore possession of. That's one way that it's used. In 2 Kings um, chapter 14, verse 22, I said this was earlier in 1 Kings, but I was mistaken. This is 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 22. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his father. So restore in this sense is being equated to being rebuilt, meaning there's a social political status that's been reconciled again, and now it's been restored. So this is very important because there are many decrees that happen, as we clearly outline, and each of them had different things that it was dealing with. The decree of Cyrus, the first one, had to deal with the temple. It wasn't with restoring all of Jerusalem. It had to do with the temple only. And that's why this is important. It's not our starting point, but we'll look at all this in greater detail. I want to look at first the importance of rebuilding the street, which is mentioned in this prophecy. Remember in verse 25, it says, then for 16, two weeks, you'll be built again with a square and moat, but in a troubled time. So it's, it's giving this prophecy that during this period of time, there will be 
something to do with the street. Now, in the KJV, there are two chunks of time that are outlined within this 69-week period before the Messiah. It says, before restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So this is also significant that there are there is a period of seven weeks or 49 years and then the rest of the 434 years that's happening. So something is happening there that we need to look at, which should call into question this idea that the first decree, Cyrus in 538 BC, is our starting point. It's not, and there's good reason why. But let's look at a great article that we'll use. Um, let's look at this for a second. Okay, here we go. This is a great article, and it's the 70 weeks in 457 BC. Now, we'll look at a lot of other things to do with this, but I want to focus on um, the importance of the street. Okay, here it is. I have to highlight these things. Okay. At the end of Daniel 20, uh, at the end of Daniel 9, verse 25, we read about the restoration and rebuilding of the street and the moat. It is quite difficult to determine the meaning of those terms, particularly the second one. It's generally accepted that the first one, Rushab, street, does not mean street, but designates a broad open space within the city. It was located by the gate of the city. Their, proclaim, their proclamations were made there. People were instructed. Legal decisions were made. And justice was to be practiced. So this was a public place. This was not like just some random street. It was significant of a political, geopolitical, socioeconomic situation. Rukab, as a designation of an open square or plaza of a town or city, had an important social function and also an official, administrative, and judicial function. One can conclude that the plaza was a symbol of the people's freedom in using the laws of their God in the administration of, so, uh, of society. The second term, sharutz, trench, is difficult to translate. It is commonly rendered moat, conduit, or similar things, but that rendering is far from certain. The verbal root means cut, decide. Some scholars have suggested that the noun in Daniel 9.25 means cut place, that is to say, a moat. But no one seems to know for sure what it really designates. However, the verb is used to express the idea of a legal decision or verdict. And there's citations for all these, so I'll leave the link for this article. It's a great research article, but uh, let's keep going. This seems to be the meaning of the noun in the phrase value of decision in Joel 3, verse 14. The nations are all brought into an open space like the public square, and their decisions are made with regard to their judgment. In fact, the verb and its derivatives are used in the Old Testament to express the idea of a decision or to determine. Based on that, it has been suggested that the noun sharutz in Daniel 9.25 means decision-making and indicates that the judiciary power of Jerusalem based on the law of God will be restored to the people. According to Daniel 9.25, the decree that would initiate the fulfillment of the 70 weeks would allow the people to govern themselves on the basis of the theocratic law and to rebuild the city, e.g. the walls of Jerusalem. So why is this? Why is the importance of the street really important? <laughs> well, first and foremost, as you can see, there's some translation issues. It's, it's if you read that just plainly, it doesn't make sense. Why? Oh, okay, the street's going to be rebuilt. Okay, who cares? Well, it's not what it's saying. It's saying that the the street, meaning the public place where decisions are being held, there's there's socio-religious 
things going on, decisions are being made, legal processes are gone, God's laws are administrated. That's more than just like rebuilding a street or rebuilding a wall. It's a social, political, theological restoration, right? So that helps us to narrow down out of all these decrees that are happening, that have happened, which one is our actual starting point? Because not all of them dealt with this. Not all of them dealt with Jerusalem being rebuilt and, and basically re, re restored as a geopolitical socioeconomic entity. Okay, let's put it that way. Cyrus's decree had to deal with just the temple. And that means that it can't be considered as the starting point of this 483-year prophecy. Now, preterism, let's go through this one by one. Preterism, which again, thinks everything happened in the past already. So there's no need to really worry about prophecy. Preterism says that 538 BC, which is the first decree by Cyrus, was the one where this 490-year prophecy would start. But because 490 years doesn't align to anything if we start at 538 BC, see how this works? If you use that date and you use the 490 years, it doesn't go anywhere. It's like some BC date doesn't, is meaningless. And so they argue that 490 years can't be literal. It's got to be symbolic or, you know, metaphorical. And therefore, because it doesn't match anything. Well, we know from Ezra chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, that only the temple was built by this decree. Let's read that. Chapter 2, thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So this, Ezra documents the first decree as only having to deal with the temple. It has nothing to do with restoring Jerusalem to a place where people could have, you know, their socioeconomic status, their political status, their laws were governed, all these things that we're, we're talking about. Those markers are not fulfilled. Now, there's the next decree, which is Darius's decree in 520 BC, and we'll look at that as well. So let me just close out some of these. Okay. The second decree is the one by Darius in 520 BC. According to Ezra 5, Zerubbabel and Joshua, under the influence of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, reinitiated the project of rebuilding the temple several years after it was stopped. So you had a lot of stopping and going with, with everything that's been happening as part of the confusion. When Tatnai, governor of the province, saw the building activities, he questioned the legal basis for what they were doing and wrote a letter to Darius asking him to verify the information he had obtained from the Jews in Jerusalem. An investigation was made and the decree of Cyrus was found. Con consequently, Darius issued another decree confirming the first one, which is found in Ezra 6. The decree of Darius is not significantly different from Cyrus's edict. The only important difference is that the king ordered Tatnai not to interfere with the project of rebuilding the temple and to impale anyone who would oppose it. So again, this decree has to deal with the temple. It's, it's not dealing with restoring Jerusalem and rebuilding the street, again, in, in the sense that the context of what that means, to rebuild it as a political, social, religious entity again. So the, the temple was, de was decreed to get started rebuilt by Cyrus. Then it got stopped. Then it got restarted again. They were questioning it. You know, they, the other parties didn't, didn't like what's going on. They want to know if it was legit or not. Then they started building the temple. And that was Darius's decree. Then you have two decrees by Artaxerxes. One of them was done in 457 BC. 
And the other was done in 444 BC. It was his second decree. Now, dispensationalism uses the 444 BC, the last decree, and it uses it in a very weird way. And basically, this theory is has been popularized by a couple of people. Two of them are Sir Robert Anderson and Harold Honer, if I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. But these two people have been very influential in promoting this idea of 444 BC as the starting point. Now, I'm going to briefly summarize what they have been teaching and what others believe, and we'll look at an article about this in a little bit. But basically what they look at is the 483 years, if you convert that to 360-day years instead of using 365 years, 365-day years, then you actually shorten the time frame into 476 years. This is all going to sound pretty confusing, but hopefully we'll make sense of it in a little bit. So again, the actual time period is 483 years because it's 69 weeks of years. That's the time period. According to this dispensational thinking, Sir Robert Anderson and later Harold Holner, the years in question are done by the 360 day length, as in a lunar type of year, not a solar year, which was what the Jews used, 365 days. That reduces the time period into 476 years. So they're saying that basically, well, that's what they actually meant. They meant, you know, because they were keeping time by using 360 day years, not 365 years like we're using today, which is not true. We'll look at that. But that's what they're saying. And they also use a proleptic calendar. A proleptic calendar means using the calendar we have today and counting back, 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 back to, you know, ancient times, like trying to find out what day Jesus was, what day would have been Jesus' crucifixion. Now we know it was Friday from the gospel accounts, but as you'll see, if you use a proleptic calendar where you're counting backwards using our current calendar, it leads to nonsensical results, meaning you can look and see that Jesus was crucified on a Tuesday if you use a proleptic calendar. And there's reasons for that because before 321 AD, when Constantine officiated, made basically the the official calendar, the Julian calendar, the seven-day week calendar and all that stuff that we use today, today we use the Gregorian calendar, but either way, the the seven-day week was standardized in 321 AD. Before that, you had all kinds of calendars. You had eight-day calendars, you had seven-day calendars, Saturday was the first day of the week, you had Hebrew calendars, you had two Hebrew calendars. There was a lot of stuff. So there's no way that you can use a calendar of trying to figure out what day it was before 321 AD. That's the point. But that's what these people are using in their calculations. So what, what they're doing is 476 years, so this new calculation, from 444 BC, which is the final decree of Artaxerxes, leads to 33 AD. And they say that that's when Jesus was crucified, that's when his triumphal entry was, so voila, there you go, that's proof that this is the way to to do it. Now, there are several things wrong with this, and we'll expand upon them as we go in this episode, but I want to pull up this article on... uh, it's from the Oxford Bible Church, and it's called The Critique of Anderson Owner's Interpretation of Daniel's 70 Weeks. This is a very technical article, and I'll again, I'll link all this stuff 
but it's a critique of Sir Robert, Answer, Robert Anderson and Harold Honer's work who have promulgated this whole idea of the dispensational way of reading the time periods and interpreting history. But let's, let's take a look at this. Anderson claims to have found the exact fulfillment to the very day of Daniel's 70 weeks. Anderson noticed that the 70th week has yet to be fulfilled in Daniel 9, verse 27. So he divided the first 69 weeks, which is 483 years, from the 70th week, which is the last seven years. Even though Daniel 9, 24 considers them as a continuous unbroken series of 490 years, which is true. To make his calculation work, he used a year of 360 days, which he calls a prophetic year. Now, 483 prophetic years of 360 days makes 1,783,880 1, days, which is really just what I was saying, 476 years. Anderson took as his starting point Artaxerxes' 20th year of reign, when Nehemiah requested and received permission from the king to continue and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. His date for 20th Artaxerxes was 445 BC. So 445, 444, that's one year. Basically, that's the year that this decree was happening. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 says it was in the month in the month Nisan that Nehemiah received his commission from Artaxerxes. Anderson assumed that this meant Nisan 1, and then calculated it as March 14th BC 445 Julian, based on it being a new moon. Now again, you can't do this. You can't calculate the days because you're using a proleptic calendar. It, it, it's impossible to go beyond 321 AD into the past like this with our own calendar. It just doesn't work. He counted 173,880 days from this date of March 14th. He did this by converting this to 476 Gregorian years, which is what I just mentioned. And 24 days, a Gregorian year is 365 days, which the reader can easily verify ends on April 6th, AD 32, which he claimed was Nisan 10th, AD 32, the date of the triumphal entry four days before the cross. So all this stuff sounds really legit and biblical and historical, but there's a lot of problems with it. Let's keep going. Since this was Jesus' official presentation of himself to Israel as the Messiah, this seems to be an impressive end point of the 483 years. At this point, God stopped the prophetic clock for Israel and will only start it again when the tribulation begins and the last 70th week of seven years will run to complete the 490 years of Daniel's prophecy. And he goes on to critique this. Now, I'm going to highlight just a couple of things. There's a lot of critiques about this and they're very detailed and technical. So if you want the full story, you know, check this out in the links. But there's a couple couple things I highlighted. Wrong intervening period. There's a serious calculation error hidden in his mixing of two calendars, of course, which by itself invalidates his calculation. There is a confusion between Julian and Gregorian calendars. The Julian calendar is longer than a true solar year, about three days and four centuries. This error amounted to 11 days in AD 1752, when our English calendar was corrected by declaring the 3rd September to be the 14th September and by introducing the Gregorian reform so that the Gregorian calendar we now use stays in line with the sun. So the Gregor- the calendar that he's using in the methodology is very flawed. Now, if we go down here a little bit, wrong kind of year. Anderson's theory relies on using a 360-day year, which he calls a prophetic year. 
Now, this can't be right because this is a prophecy specifically about Israel and would be used and would use the kind of year used by Israel, which was a loony solar year, which always stayed aligned with the seasons for agricultural and ceremonial reasons. The feasts were connected to their seasons, of course. So the Passover, the 14th of Nisan, was always kept in the spring after the vernal equinox on March 20th, around there, according to the biblical requirement. This fact will prove important shortly. Therefore, the Jewish year averaged 365 days, not 360 days. Anyone reading this prophecy, including Daniel, would have understood that this kind of year was indeed rather than the 360-day year, which Israel never used. The 360-day year is actually a Babylonian time, and it slips over five days a year against the solar seasons, and neither it is in phase with the sun or the moon, or neither is it in phase with the moon. It is certainly not the year used by Israel. It is misleading to argue that this is the year generally used in the Bible. In fact, it is used most on two specific occasions, the 150 days of Noah's flood and the two halves, the 1260 days each of the tribulation. These situations are both special in that they are times of worldwide judgment and seems that this is when God uses 360 day year. Now, this person seems to believe that 1260 days is literal tribulation. I disagree with that for very good reason that we just have outlined. But in either case, this 360-day year idea is not used to count time. It's very used in very specific situations and not very common. That's the point. The loony solar year is used by Israel. Is The year used in prophecy is confirmed by the fact that 490 years are described as 70 weeks sevens of of years. This is a clear reference to how God told Israel to count the years in Leviticus 25, which we looked at. They were to mark every seventh year as a Sabbath year when the land was to be rested. Every seven sevens of those years was a jubilee cycle, which was 49 years. And the 490 years were thought of as a 70 of sevens or 10 jubilee cycles of 49 years, each on Israel's calendar. Thus, the language used alludes to the Jewish sabbatical and jubilee cycles that Israel kept according to the law. We know that the years Israel used and counted in this manner were lunisolar according to God's law, with each month starting with a new moon and each year starting so that Passover in the first month was in the spring. These years had to be kept in phase with the solar year, both for agricultural reasons and for the feasts which were connected to the harvest, both took place in the right season. But the 360-day years used by Anderson and Honer to make their calculations work neither stay aligned with the seasons nor with the sabbatical cycles. The Passover falls back by five days a year and by an entire month every six years. If only 30, in, in only 35 years, the Passover would occur in the fall, which is nonsense. Every 70 years, the Passover would have circled all the way through the seasons back to where it started. Thus, there is no possible way to make Anderson owners' calculations align with the years and cycles used by Israel, even though the language used by used strongly indicates that the prophecy is expressed in terms of these years and cycles. Thus, the 360-day calculation is just a hypothetical calculation that bears no resemblance for the years or cycles being used by Israel, and therefore is against the plain meaning of prophecy. Therefore, good Bible interpretation requires us to reject them. Once we see the 360-day calculation does not work anyway, then all grounds for considering the 360-day year disappear. The only possible way to do it justice to the language of the prophecy with the 490 years counted 
in a way consistent to the Jewish sabbatical system is to use real Jewish lunisolar years that stay aligned with the seasons, such as these years that must, on average, be 365 days in length, not 360. So, quite a mouthful there, but the point is this. The point is this. The calculation that dispensationalists use by starting at 444 BC, the second decree of Artaxerxes, and using the 360-day year, prophetic year, whatever calculation, is totally bonkers. In just 35 years or whatever it was, the Passover would be in the fall if that was the case. Everything was tied to the seasons. God has created a beautiful clock that we live in. Everything is extremely specific. So imagine what that would mean if God would give a prophecy where it would change the time of the Passover. Passover happens in the spring. Why? Because it's about new life. It's about resurrection. Passover was always about foreshadowing Christ and Christ's death and therefore the resurrection. What happens in the spring? New life comes from winter. And that's when Passover happens. That's the whole point. Why would Passover occur in the fall? That makes absolutely no sense. And so you have to reject that. Just on that grounds alone, the whole understanding of dispensational thinking in terms of these dates and how they're fulfilled, they're they're correct in that the prophecy is talking about years, that it's weeks of years, 490 years. But the way they're appropriating history is incorrect. And I hope you see that by now. So the first two decrees, let's, let's wrap some of this up now. The first two decrees, which are Cyrus and Darius, were about the temple only. They had nothing to do with restoring Jerusalem's socioeconomic status, political status, uh, you know, legal status, whatever, right? The final decree, which is Artaxerxes' second decree, which was in 444 BC, dispensationalists use that in an incorrect way. If we take 483 years, actual years, from 444 BC, it leads to 40 AD. Nothing happened in 40 AD. Christ was crucified in 31 AD, and we'll look at how that lines up. But either way, 40 AD is a meaningless date if we actually use real years. And so that is wrong. It's not correct. For, so that leaves only one decree by elimination, and that leaves 457 BC, which is Artaxerxes' first decree. And that's the true decree. And if we look at 483 years from 457 BC, where does that take us? That takes us to 27 AD. Miraculously enough, that's exactly when Jesus started his ministry. That's when he had his baptism. And we know that from several texts. And we'll look at Luke chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, John the Baptist prepares the way. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturera, and the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So Luke is time stamping this very specifically, and we'll look at how how that aligns with it. But the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius and with Pilate as governor, that was 27 AD. We'll establish all of this very clearly with history and with scripture. But we see from Mark chapter one, where Jesus begins his ministry, he says, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God saying, the time is fulfilled 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What time is fulfilled? Could it possibly, could he possibly be talking about the prophecy of Daniel that everybody knew about when the Messiah would come? The time is fulfilled. That was in 27 AD, meaning the Messiah is here. Repent, believe the kingdom, it's imminent. And if we look in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 5, this is echoed, the whole idea of the time being fulfilled. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under law, might under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So when the fullness of time has come, this is a reference to possibly, I think, the fullness of the prophecy of Daniel about the Messiah. It could also be talking about the fullness of time from Genesis 3.15, where God gave Eve and Adam and the snake, he he gave the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel or sort of the first prophecy of the Messiah, where he would uh, the woman would bear give birth to the Messiah. He would crush the serpent's head. That was the first prophecy having to do with the Messiah. And so it could be talking about that. But in either case, the fullness of time was 27 AD. That was the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And keep these numbers in mind. I, I don't expect you to keep all the numbers in mind, but 27 AD has an important number because it relates to Jesus's birth and other things about his life, as we'll soon see. Now, if if the decree in 457 BC is the one we're after, let's let's look at a little bit at that. So this is found in Ezra chapter 7, and we're going to read a commentary about that. Okay. The third decree is the one of Artaxerxes in 457 BC, recorded in Ezra 7, chapters 12 through 26, verses 12 through 26. This decree is significantly different from the previous ones partially because by then the temple had already been finished. Ezra is now introduced as the one who above all others was responsible for the establishment of the Pentateuchal law as the norm for all the religious and social life in the post-exilic community. In other words, he was the one that was appointed to restore Jerusalem to the extent that this was prophesied. The decree of Artaxerxes included several important elements. Granted permit number one, it granted permission to the exiles to return to Jerusalem. Number two, funds were assigned for the support of the temple in Jerusalem. Number three, the temple and the temple personnel were tax exempted. Number four, Ezra was to investigate the condition of the people in Judah, possibly in order to bring their lives into agreement with the Mosaic law. Number five, it is it established a legal system based on the Torah for all the Jews in Judea and throughout the Trans-Euphrates province. This last point included uh, in, in this last point include setting up magistrates and judges to enforce the law. So already we can see that this is very different from the previous decrees, definitely having to do with restoring Jerusalem as a socio-political legal entity. Uh, moving on, of particular importance is verse 26. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the kingdom must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. The Persian king made the Mosaic law part of his own law, granting it imperial authority. The Jews could now use it freely to regulate their lives and in the administration of justice in Jerusalem. The king restored the authority of the Jews to govern themselves on the basis of the law of God. It is to this type of restoration that Daniel 9.25 was pointing in its prophetic announcement. 
So that's what the whole restore and rebuild Jerusalem was talking about, which is exactly what's happening in this third decree in 457. The decree of Artaxerxes recorded in Ezra 7 was comprehensive enough to permit the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In fact, the rebuilding of the city is implicit in the authorization to set up a judicial system at a central place based on the law of God. But in addition, we do find clear evidence in Ezra and Nehemiah to the effect that Ezra was authorized to rebuild the city. The first line of evidence is found in Nehemiah 1. About 13 years after Ezra arrived at Jerusalem, Nehemiah is informed that those who returned to Palestine were in great trouble and shame, that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the gates were destroyed by fire. This is in the first chapter of Nehemiah. The reaction of Nehemiah to this information in verse 4 is so strong that this report cannot possibly refer to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar some 140 years previously. I mean, it's obvious. Excuse me. He would have known long before 444 B.C., what the Babylonian army had done to Jerusalem in 586 BC. Nehemiah is referring to a recent event and indicates that the rebuilding of the city had been in progress but was stopped and much of the work done had been damaged and or destroyed, which is true. This rebuilding project took place before 444 BC but was unfinished. The question is, when did the rebuilding of the wall begin? Was it during the time of Cyrus, Darius, or Artaxerxes? The biblical text provides a clear answer. According to Ezra 4, chapter 7, verses, or chapter 4, verse 7 through 23, it took place during the reign of Artaxerxes. From all the things we saw previously. This leads us to the second line of evidence. Ezra chapter 4, verse 7 through 23 states that a group of Persian officers in the province called Trans-Euphrates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes recording their opposition to the rebuilding of Jerusalem by the Jews, which is from Artaxerxes' first decree. In the letter, they stated two important things. First, they mentioned to the king that the city was being rebuilt. The walls were being finished, and the foundations were being repaired. Second, this rebuilding was being done by the Jews who come up from you to us, and who were in in Jerusalem. The phrase, from you to us, indicates that the rebuilding was being done by a group of exiles who had been authorized by Artaxerxes to return to Jerusalem. In other words, they weren't like, you know, doing this willy-nilly of their own authority. So they were authorized. The question is, when were they authorized? According to Ezra 7, the king authorized Ezra and the exiles in 457 BC to return to Jerusalem. It was this group of exiles who were rebuilding the city. In the letter, the Persian officers tried to persuade the king to stop the project, arguing that Jerusalem had always been a rebellious city And then, in fact, it was because of that that the Babylonians destroyed it. The letter argued that if the Jews were permitted to finish their project, they could take control of the Trans-Euphrates province and would stop paying taxes and tribute to the king. This was an exaggeration, but it could have been based on the fact that Artaxerxes authorized Ezra to teach and to enforce the law of God throughout the province and not just in Jerusalem. It also is important to observe that the letter does not suggest in any way that the rebuilding of the city in its walls was being done without royal consent, which is what we just talked about. Since the officers were trying to damage the Jewish community, had the rebuilding been illegal, they would have just used the argument of insubordination to the king and, and against them. The arguments that they used presupposed that the rebuilding was authorized by the king. They wanted the project stopped not because it was not supported by Artaxerxes, but because of the potential danger of insurrection once it was finished. 
The answer to this letter given by the king suggests that the Jews had been authorized by Artaxerxes to rebuild the city. Once the compliant, once the complaint was received and the king did not, once, once the complaint was received, the king did not check whether the Jews had been authorized to rebuild Jerusalem because he already authorized them in the past. He knew that they had been legally authorized to do what they were doing. He could only stop the project on the basis of potential insurrection in the future. Hence, he checked the history of Jerusalem, and it was confirmed that it had been a rebellious city. And based on that, he ordered that the project be stopped. This is verse 19. We should notice that the decree allowing for the rebuilding of the city was not canceled out, but its execution was postponed by the king to a future time to be determined by him. So you got to know your history. This stuff is fascinating. This he did during the time of Nehemiah, which is in Nehemiah chapter 2. That's his second decree. So Artaxerxes, a little quick little break. Artaxerxes had two decrees. The first one, he said, okay, go for it, rebuild Jerusalem, you know, restore it. That was the decree that this prophecy starts. But there were a lot of hiccups. A lot of people were like, no, we don't want them to rebuild the city. They're going to they're gonna rebel. And so then the king postponed it. And then he reissued another order later. And so the actual order that began these, this whole prophecy is the 457 order. It's the one that actually gave funds and legal rights and, and processes to rebuild Jerusalem as a city. Now, there were a lot of hiccups on the way. That's why there was a second decree. But it's the first one that matters in terms of this prophecy because that's the one that the prophecy uses as a marker. Let's, let's keep reading because there's a little more. The Persian officers took the letter of the, to the king. Sorry. The Persian officers took the letter of the king, went to Jerusalem, and by force and power made the Jews cease. It is difficult to know the full meaning of that last phrase, but it is certainly indicates that the officers employed military force to stop the project, and that at least some of the sections of the wall were destroyed. This explains why it took Nehemiah only 52 days to rebuild the wall of the city. This is in Nehemiah chapter 6. It is to this attack on the Jews and the city that Nehemiah chapter 1 refers. Like when Nehemiah was informed that, oh, the wall's been destroyed, he's not crying because the wall was destroyed 144 years ago. He's upset and distressed because he knew that the Jerusalem was being rebuilt and then it, these people stopped it by force. And so he's finding out like, oh man, like we just started, now it has to be done all over again. That's what he's lamenting. And that's what Nehemiah chapter 1 is referring to. Now, going on. The third line of evidence supporting the conviction that the decree of Artaxerxes in in 457 BC allowed the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem is found in Ezra chapter 9 verse 9. In one of his prayers, Ezra states that God authorized the people through the Persian kings to rebuild the house of our God and to repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Some scholars have given a metaphorical interpretation to the phrase, a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem, arguing that there is never that there was never a little, literal wall around Judea. The wall is then taken to be a symbol of divine protection. But such approach is not persuasive. First, if there is a wall associated with Jerusalem, then there would be a wall in Judah where Jerusalem is located. Secondly, the wall in Judah and Jerusalem is just as just as physical and real as the house of our God, the temple, which is also referred to in the same verse. It is true that the word gader, wall, is not common, is not a common word used to designate a city, 
a city wall, but it's also used in the Old Testament to designate such a wall. It's in Micah. The prophecy of Daniel 9, verse 25, was fulfilled in 457 BC, when Artaxerxes authorized Ezra through royal decree to go to Jerusalem accompanied by a group of exiles to restore and rebuild the city. The the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show clearly that this was exactly what took place, that the rebuilding of the city was finished under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, a lot to consider there, but the, the basic gist is this. The 444 BC date, the second decree of Artaxerxes, which dispensational is used, is not the right one. Because, again, it leads to 40 AD, that there's no there's nothing meaningful that happened in 40 AD. The first two decrees, which preterists use, which was by Cyrus and Darius, not only do not, they don't line up with anything, but they didn't have anything to do with Jerusalem. They were just about the temple. The actual decree that not only lines up with everything, but also has to deal with Jerusalem is 457 BC. It's Artaxerxes' first decree. Now, there were hiccups again. There were hiccups that happened, and Nehemiah was informed 13 years after the original decree in 457 BC that, oh, you know, (laughs) these guys that basically were opposing the construction, they went and basically destroyed most of the work, right? That's why it only took 52 days to repair the work, because some of it was already done. Think about that. If if this was like the first time that they were going to work, it would have taken much longer than 52 days. So this is why history is really interesting, but you have to really look at details. You have to really study time and corroborate different sources of evidence because it can get pretty murky, especially as you go into ancient history and biblical history, although the Bible does a good job of outlining history and you know it's a very historical text. But the thing is this, the Jews were opposed after the first decree. Their work was delayed, destroyed, and then there was a second decree to reinstate the the work. That second decree is not what we count. It's the first decree of Artaxerxes, which is in 457 BC. So, if we look a summary, if we look at a summary of this, um, a brief summary of everything that happened. So let's put it all together. This is a great summary. Canonical narrative. A brief summary of the main elements in the narrative recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah would include the following. So this is kind of just wrapping all this up. Number one, Cyrus issued a decree in 538 BC granting authority to the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to collect money in Babylonia for the project. Number two, the Jews arrived at Judah and began to rebuild the temple. A series of internal reasons led to the returnees to stop the project. In 520 BC, Encouraged by Haggai and Zechariah, Zerubbabel and Joshua reinitiated the building of the temple. That was Darius's decree. Number three, there was a strong opposition to rebuilding of the temple by the neighboring people. It was necessary for Darius in 520 BC to reconfirm the decree of Cyrus. In spite of the problems, the temple was finished and dedicated in 515 BC. And all this has Bible references. Number four, even after the temple was finished, the enemies of the Jews wrote letters against them to King Xerxes. Number five, about 58 years after the temple was rebuilt, Artaxerxes issued a decree giving permission to Ezra to go to Jerusalem with another group of exiles to restore and rebuild the city. This took place in 457 BC. That's our starting date. You'll see why all this is just so fascinating. Persian officials were able to stop the rebuilding of the city, but 
About 13 years later, Nehemiah was authorized by Artaxerxes to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall of the city. The decree of 457 was renewed. Shortly thereafter, the wall was finished under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. So you had a lot of stuff going on. It wasn't like a straightforward thing, but it is straightforward when we consider that 457 is the starting point of the 490-year prophecy. And when you align that, remember the first 483 years is from the starting of the decree to go and restore Jerusalem to the arrival of Messiah, 483 years, if you start in 457 BC, it leads to, to 27 AD. That's exactly when Jesus came on the scene, got baptized, and began his ministry. So it's pretty fascinating. Now, let's look at 457 BC and, and kind of pinpointing that a little bit better. The academic consensus around when Artaxerxes first basically came to power was 464 a, uh, sorry, BC. Seven years, which is the seventh year of Artaxerxes, when the decree happened, would mean 457 BC. Now, Jews were using two calendars. They're using a fall-to-fall year, and, and Babylonians were using a spring-to-spring year. So sometimes there is confusion there. We're going to look at a great resource for that. But when you compare, for example, Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in the Shushan, the, I was in Shushan, the palace. Okay, so this happened in a particular month, Chislev or Chisleu. If you look later in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, and it came to pass in the month Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king. So the same year, 20th year, but chronologically, Nisan is after Chislev. This is very important because the Jews were using a spring-to-spring year, and Nisan would be before, not after Chislev. So why does this matter? Well, let's take a look at this very important article uh, on the date of Artaxerxes' decrees. So, um, okay, Xerxes was assassinated by his official Artabanus, who became region of Persia for a few months before being executed in the last half of 465 BC. Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes, became king. His accession year would have lasted until 29th Adar, 464 BC. This is what we just said. When the Persian calendar year ended, then his full year would have been, by Persian reckoning, 1st Nisan, 464 to 29th Adar. Hence, his year's it gives you a list of his years, but basically his seventh year would be from Nisan 458 to Adar 457. So that would be his seventh year. And that's the year that Ezra tells us that the decree was given, which was the seventh year of Artaxerxes' uh, reign. Now, why do so many say his seventh year was 457 BC? Well, for a good reason. It is because the first set of commandments were counting from Nisan, from a Nisan new year. And the second group are counting from a Tishri to Tishri system. This is kind of what we were just talking about. When Artaxerxes' accession year stretched to Tishri, his full year comes six months later, making the date mentioned refer to the following Nisan instead. Yes, the Hebrew New Year began in Nisan like the Persian one did. No, the, the original Hebrew calendar did not have a Rosh Hashanah New Year as our modern Jewish one does. 
nor was there a distinction between civil and ecclesiastical calendars, as so often claimed when discussing the subject. However, when it came to to a king's reign, the king of Judah used to offset its regnal years to a Tishri system in a manner similar to how we designate a fiscal year. Advocates for the 457 BC date apply this method to Artaxerxes, reckoning as the accession year, meaning the, the year that he took power, from when his father died until the end of Elul 464 BC. This full year would have been deemed by Jewish writers to have started then, though to Elul, uh, it started then through to Elul 463 BC. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were not written by Persian historians, they were written by Jews. So by saying Artaxerxes' seventh year, they would have meant it to be Tishri 458 to Elul 457. Here's an explanatory table, and it gives you a table there. And again, you can look, these are very detailed articles. I'm trying to pick kind of the the easier things to read out of these. Does scripture support the 57 BC date? The argument becomes stronger with more evidence from Nehemiah's account of Artaxerxes' 20th year. He says, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, this is what we were just referencing in, in the first chapters of Nehemiah. Then he proceeds to mention the same 20th in the following Nisan. If the Persian calendar was being quoted, it would have switched to the 21st year, but it didn't. So Artaxerxes' reign was indeed being measured from Tishri to Tishri. The Nisan mentioned in this case referring to 444 BC. Put another way, Persian records of the same event, if it was of any interest to them, would have read 21st year, right? Because Nisan comes before Kishlev, not after. That's the point. So they were using a different year, a reckoning system. This is the point with all these ancient history things, that people are using multiple different calendars. Is there another explanation for the Tishri count? Applying Judah's regnal year system is reasonable, but there has been an unnoticed matter that may provide an even better explanation. When a continuous count of sabbatical years is made from the time Moses instituted the Hebrew calendar, a rare jubilee year coincides with the date of Artaxerxes' accession in 465 and 464 BC, that year. So it was a jubilee year, which is very interesting. Once every 49 years, the Hebrews inserted a 50th year, and these jubilees were an exception to the usual Nisan calendar. It started in Tishri and was announced on the Day of Atonement. Thus, if a jubilee had been announced followed, uh, followed by a new king later in the same year, that king's accession would have extended to the next Tishri. However, there is no precedent of this happening among the Judean or Samaritan kings, and the first example in the Bible is the Persian monarch under discussion here, who's Artaxerxes. The Jews seem to have measured Artaxerxes' reign from Tishri to Tishri in keeping with the rare new year in force when he took office. So we are left with three possibilities concerning the decree dates. The first is Artaxerxes' reign was being measured on the usual Nisan to Nisan calendar, and Nehemiah's 20th year was a scribal error. The dates in question, therefore, were 458 B.C. and 445 B.C. Jewish records of foreign monarchs followed Judah's former Tishri to Tishri method of recording king's reigns. The dates in question, therefore, were 457 B.C. and 444 B.C. And the third possibility is Artaxerxes' reign 
began on a jubilee, hence a Tishri-to-Tishri system uniquely applied to his reign. The dates in question, like the second option, were 457 BC and 444 BC. So do you see that now if we scroll, we'll talk, talk about them in just a second. If you scroll down to the bottom of this, you see a nice chart of how all this plays out. 457 BC is when the decree started. And then eighties 27 is when Jesus' ministry began. You have three and a half years. That's three and a half days. He gets cut off in the middle of the week. We'll get to all this. Three and a half years. Three is eighty thirty four. That's when the gospel goes to the Gentiles and the 490-year period is over. All of this is confirmed. It's it's so beautiful how, how it works so mathematically. I mean, again, it just gives you so much respect for God's sovereignty and wisdom in putting together things. But what what is the point here? Some people say it's 458 BC. And the, the point is this. There are so many ways that time was being counted because of all the different rules and regulations and ceremonial things and the seasons. Time was very complex before 321 AD when our calendar was especially officialized. So when you are doing research on these types of things and trying to pinpoint dates, you have to really read quite a lot. Now, the articles I've cited for you are very technical. They're much longer. There's a lot of stuff in there. So if you're curious about that stuff, you can access them in the resources section of this, of the description of this episode. But the main point from the one I just read is that Artaxerxes' year when he took power in 464 BC was a jubilee year. On jubilee years, the Jews were using a Tishri to Tishri system. It was like a unique thing that was that was being done. And you can tell from how Nehemiah describes the the month of Chislev, and then you have Nisan. Well, normally Nisan comes before Chislev. Okay? But in this case, if they're using a Tishri to Tishri system, which is a different way of measuring the year, a starting point and ending point, then in that case, Nisan comes after Chislev because Tishri is in the fall. Okay? Nisan is in the spring. Does that make sense? So if you if your new year is starting in the spring, Nisan to Nisan, then Nisan would always come before Chislev because it's the first month of the year. But in this case, Tishri was being used, and that's evidenced in Nehemiah that they were using the special system on top of the fact that it was a jubilee year. And so the point is that all of this boils down to very clearly that the year of Artaxerxes' decree, the seventh year, was 457 BC, not 458, 457. And you'll see why all of this matters so beautifully. I know it's really laboring these points with times and uh, details, but it all comes together. And the point is this, 47 BC is a decree, and it fits perfectly with the prophecy. It was a jubilee year. Dispensationalism is wrong. Preterism is wrong. Futurism is wrong. Historicism is the way to read it. And 457 BC perfectly predicts the arrival of Jesus, which is in 27 AD. Now, I want to jump into pinpointing AD 27 and getting a little more clear on that. So if we take the first 69 weeks, which again is 483 prophetic years from 457, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and we count forward in time, that leads us directly to AD 27. Now, that's when Jesus' ministry began, and we have a lot of chronological timestamps to prove that. 
So in Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, we just read that in the 15th year of reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and there's all these timestamps of basically, um, you know, who was in charge and who was doing what. Luke is being very specific about the time of when this began, and probably for good reason because he knew that the prophecy was being fulfilled. But in either case, let's look at how Tiberius Caesar and how the, the 15th year relates to AD 27. There's a lot of time markers, and we'll look through all of them. Um, okay, so let's look at, uh, this is a collection of historical coins and, and and basically evidence of different, you know, sculptures and coins and things that, that timestamp various things. But it says this, Jesus was almost 31 and a half years old when he was baptized, while Luke says that Jesus was baptized in the 15th year of reign of Tiberius Caesar, which would be eighty twenty nine. Since Augustus died in eighty fourteen, it would be so. Normally, people think that eighty twenty nine is when Jesus was baptized, which would mean that the prophecy isn't correct; it's not exact. But there's more to the story. Augustus died in eighty fourteen. It should be recalled that Tiberius was co-emperor with Augustus for two and one half years before the death of Augustus, having had the coins struck in his honor in October AD eleven. The 15th year of his actual rule, therefore, was the very year of AD 26 to AD 27. That's of of Jesus' baptism. And this was also the year that Pontius Pilate began his rule as governor of Judea. So again, history is very clear, but you have to do your digging. Most people say, oh, you see, the 15th year of Tiberius was AD 29, because Augustus died in AD 14. So 15 years plus 14 years, that's AD 29. doesn't match the prophecy. 483 years plus 457 is 8027. It's not 8029. Well, yes, that's true, but it's not 8029 because the first two years of Tiberius' reign, he was co-ruling with Augustus. And so his actual rule started in two years earlier, meaning the 15th year of his rule, which is how it was being counted, was 8027, and the prophecy is exact. So, that's really cool. Now we're going to read a couple things about Tiberius Caesar, which are pretty fascinating. Um, this is an article, another scholarly article um, about Tiberius. And we're talking about Luke's histo- historiography. Luke chapter 3 verse 1 gives us several chronological indicators in a single sentence. We read that. The first thing we notice here is that all of these people in their various offices had various degrees of overlap with the start of the ministry of John the Baptist. It's apparent that Luke is attempting to firmly anchor John's ministry to a particular point in history. A look at Wikipedia yields the following generally accepted date ranges for the key individuals. Tiberius Caesar, AD 14 to AD 37. Pontius Pilate, AD 26 to AD 36. Herod, 4 BC to AD 39, Annas, the high priest, AD 6 to AD 15, and Joseph, uh, Joseph Caiaphas, high priest, AD 18 to AD 36. An oddity is apparent here, which gives us insight into the way Luke thinks about chronology. It is the mention of the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. If Luke's only purpose was to pro- provide chronological hooks on which to hang the ministry of John the Baptist, why would two high priests be mentioned? 
only one of whom was actually in office during John's ministry. As far as official records go, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests at different times with no overlap, with only Caiaphas serving while John baptized in the wilderness. There seems to be only one way to explain this. Since the record-keeping of the Jews concerning their high priests was too precise for us to suppose Luke had made an error, Luke was recognizing practical political realities in Judea. He was not slavishly repeating official records, but taking a pragmatic approach in his reporting that recognized the real-world impact certain people had on the lives of the Jews. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the influential patriarch of the family, the political savvy power behind the throne, quote, so to speak. For all practical purposes, he was a co-high priest, influencing the decisions of his son-in-law and the Sanhedrin, and having a marked impact on the religious life of the Jews, even though his formal tenure in office ended before the Baptist came on the scene. So this is very important because how Luke is counting time, how Luke is counting, we're going to read another section here about the Tiberius and Augustus, but how Luke is counting time, there's a hint in the fact that he lists Annas and Caiaphas together because they weren't actually ruling at the same time by chronology standards. But from, you know, the, the, seeing things truly side of things, just how we see today, like when we see certain presidents and we say, oh, you know, he's not really president. It's so-and-so that's ruling. You know, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and so on, they're pulling the strings behind the leaders. It's not actually the president. So if you were to say President Rothschild, people would understand what you're saying. You're not actually saying Rothschild is the actual president of the United States. You're saying that Rothschild's controlling the president of the United States. So that would be an accurate thing. Now, Luke is doing the same thing. He's not saying, yeah, these people were at the same time. He's not making a gross error like that because they were very precise. He's saying there's something going on here, that the, there's a relationship between these two. Anas is influencing Caiaphas, and so there's a particular time where uh, you know, Caiaphas is obviously ruling the Sanhedrin, but he's Honest is alive and he's kind of pulling the strings from behind the scenes. So Luke is painting that picture. Meaning, if he's doing that with Ionus and Caiaphas, is it likely that he's doing it with Tiberius and Augustus? Is, is he counting Tiberius's rule from when Augustus died, which is uh, AD 14? Or is he counting Tiberius's rule from when he, they were both co-ruling? Do you see the relationship there and how that pattern would be reflected? And that's what we're going to read next. The co-princeps of Tiberius. At any rate, Luke's approach to the high priest means it is distinctly possible they may have taken a similar pragmatic, pragmatic approach to the 15th year of Tiberius, viewing it differently than did the Romans. Is there any indication that this is the case? Yes, and it lies in the fact that we have evidence Tiberius was made co-princeps with powers equal to those of Augustus over the Roman, over the Roman provinces, including Judea, prior to the death of Augustus. Of Augustus. The ancient historian Suetonius recorded the following information. After two years, he, Tiberius, returned to the city from Germany and celebrated the triumph for his military victories in Germany and Pannonia. Since the consuls caused a law to be passed soon after this that he should govern the provinces jointly with Augustus and hold the census with him, he set out for Illyricum. Illyricum on the conclusion of the lustral ceremonies, which culminated in the census, but he was at once recalled 
and finding Augustus in his last illness but still alive, he spent an entire day with him in private. Similarly, according to Valeus Patericlus, online at this, they give you a resource here, a soldier who served under Tiberius, this is the testimony of, of him. After he had broken the force of the enemy by his expeditions on the sea and land, had completed his difficult task in Gaul, and had settled by restraint rather than by punishment the dissensions that had broken out among the Vienneses, at the request of his father, that he should have in all provinces the, an armies of power equal to his own, the Senate and the Roman people so decreed. For indeed it was incongruous that the provinces which were being defended by him should not also be under his jurisdiction, and that he was foremost in bearing aid should not be considered an equal in the honor to be won. So he was fighting and defending these provinces, and everybody's saying, well, he should also be ruling them if that's the case. On his return to the city, he celebrated the triumph over the Pannonians and Dalmatians, long since due him, but postponed by reason of a succession of wars. While both passages agree that Tiberius, excuse me, did indeed receive authority equal that of Augustus in the provinces prior to Augustus' death, it is slightly ambiguous exactly when they were granted. Patericlus seems at first glance to be saying that Tiberius was first granted the co-princeps powers at his father's behest, then the triumph took place afterwards. According to the Fasti Prenestini inscription, on October 23rd, 12 AD, Tiberius rode a chariot in triumph from Illyricum. This implies he received Coprinceps authority in AD 12. However, the way the passage is written allows one to interpret it as Patericlus first presenting the big picture, then adding as an afterthought the observation that on his return to the city, i.e. right after his return from the military campaigns, he celebrated his triumph. This would make the granting of Coprinceps authority following shortly thereafter, in agreement with Suetonius, which was the Roman historian. That makes good sense. After all, the high honor of virtually unlimited authority over the empire seems to be such that it would not have been granted in absentia, meaning while you're absent, while Tiberius was still on the field, but in his presence to public and senatorial acclamation, following his return back to Rome. On the whole, then, the weight of scholarship seems to favor Suetonius's timeline. Tiberius celebrated his triumph in October AD 12. Coprinceps power was then granted to him in the first half of AD 13. The census-taking and lustral ceremonies occupied the lateral, the lateral half of AD 13. Then early AD 14 saw his trip to Illyricum, followed by a quick recall home for Augustus' Augustus's final illness. So it all started in AD 12. Highly respected scholar Theodore Momsen views the situation that way, noting a history, noting in a history of Rome under the emperors that only months prior to the death of Augustus, the same powers that were invested in the emperor were conferred on him in all provinces. Only months prior implies less than a year, seemingly making AD 12 too early. What we may take away from these co-princeps details considers together with Luke's pragmatic attitude towards the high priesthood of Annas is that Luke may well have regarded the first year of Tiberius, so far as Judea was concerned, as beginning in AD 13. By inclusive reckoning, this would assign the 15th year of Tiberius, which the ministry of John the Baptist began, to AD 27. So, pretty complicated stuff there, it seems like, but really it's not. I mean, basically, you just have to read about history. You have to read history and you have to 
be okay with these different dates and numbers and kind of keep track of them all. Because basically what happened was Augustus died in AD 14. But things weren't so black and white. Like you didn't just transfer the crown right at the point in time. Tiberius was out doing things, you know, campaigning. He came back. He was given uh, the co-princeps, basically the co-ruling authority in AD 13. That was kind of when it was formalized. And then AD 14, Augustus died. So Luke was pointing to a a reality that was not necessarily black and white, but he was pointing to the behind the scenes what's going on, just like he did with Annas and Caiaphas. So it's the same thing. He's pointing to that co-ruling situation. And it makes perfect sense because if we go with that timeline, which is AD 13, the 15th year by counting inclusively, if you remember inclusive means counting the year. In in non-inclusive counting, if we go from AD 13 to AD 14, that's one year. In inclusive reckoning, which is what Romans and Hebrews were using at the time, you count the day of. That's why, for example, it is three days for the resurrection and the death of Christ, because Friday, Saturday, Sunday is three days if you count inclusively. It's not inclusive if you count it the way we count it modern, like from Friday to Sunday, you know, that's Friday to, to Saturday, that's one day, Saturday to Sunday, that's two days. So you're missing all day. So you see how this is, again, when it comes to historical things, you have to really understand time and differences and keeping time and calendars and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, Luke is basically pointing to a reality that 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 mirrors what he was reporting with Annas and Caiaphas. It's very clear that he's pointing to these hidden realities politically that were happening. And one of those hidden realities was that Tiberius was already ruling before Augustus died. So another thing, another marker for this 26 to 27 AD time marker for the beginning of Jesus' ministry is Pilate beginning his governorship in 26 AD. And we know that simply by uh, just looking it up. I mean, if you look at Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, and let's see where it is. Pontius Pilate died after 36 CE, Roman prefect governor of Judea, 26 to 36 AD under the emperor Tiberius who presided at the tribal. So Pontius Pilate began his, um, I was going to say ministry, <laughs> definitely not, but he began his rule as governor in 26 AD. So he was in his first year when it was 27 AD. Does that make sense? In the first, so if we look back at Luke chapter 1 verse 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. So when did Pontius Pilate begin to be governor of Judea? 26 AD. When was the 15th year of Tiberius? 27 AD. So 27 AD, Pontius Pilate was already in his first year of governing. So that checks out. Now we also know Herod did some renovations on the temple. That's another timestamp. And we know that from John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he was talking about the temple of his body. Then the Jews said, 40 and six years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So they're talking about a 46 time period where it's being, the ESV translated is like this. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? So 46 years, what are they talking about? Well, Herod's renovations 
on the temple were in the years 20 to 19 BC. And we can look that up simply by just going to Wikipedia. So if you just look up uh, the second temple and we go down and we look at Herod's temple, reconstruction of the temple under Herod began with a massive expansion of the Temple Mount to Menos. For example, the Temple Mount complex initially measured seven hectares, but Herod expanded it to 14 hectares and so doubled its area. Herod's work on the temple is generally dated from 20 to 19 BC until 12 or 11 uh to, or 10 BC. So anyway, it started in 20 to 19 BC. That was the year that it started. So 46 years, counting from 19 BC, where does that take you? The answer is 27 AD. Do you see all these things are lining up? 27 AD, 27 AD, the 15th year of Tiberius. Pontius Pilate had just started being governor, 27 AD. Herod's renovations, when the Pharisees say, oh, it's been 46 years. Well, where, where does that mark them in time? It marks them in 27 AD. Now, there's an interesting uh, history behind the birth of Jesus being in 3 BC, because Luke also tells us that Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. Now, that's really interesting, because if he was about 30, and we know that 27 AD is when the time was fulfilled, that's when the, the prophecy was fulfilled, and the ministry began, that final week began, then he must have been born in 3 BC. A lot of people have different varying views on when Jesus was born. Some say 4 BC, some say earlier than that, uh, or I should say later, like 1 BC or 2 BC. But really, if we look at how, it's, again, it's all so beautifully choreographed by God. 27 AD, he was about 30 Jesus was born in 3 BC. And there's a lot of research behind that. Michael Heiser, I'm going to put a link for that in the description for the show notes. Michael Heiser has a wonderful presentation. He's an Old Testament scholar. He's dead now, unfortunately, but I think he died of cancer. But some great presentations on why Jesus was born in 3 BC. But I'm going to read this article that discusses this point um, about basically Jesus' birth, the death of Herod. And why is, it, why is it important to establish the date of Herod's death? Simply because the birth of Jesus and the visit of the Magi must occur prior to Herod's death. If the death of Herod occurred after September 11th, 3 BC, which is his argued date for the birth of Jesus, and after December 25th, 2 BC, my argued date for the visit of the Magi, then the validity of the argued dates would be greatly enhanced. So this is an article written by... Uh, in a ministry called Truth and Scripture, and they're very well-researched. And again, I'll put also a link for Michael Heiser. He's a very respected Bible scholar. And it's a video, but it's a long presentation, about an hour, to talk about how Jesus was born in 3 BC. And that's that's pretty clear. And that works exactly with this prophecy. Again, all this stuff lines up. But let's look at this. Several lunar eclipses occurred in 7 BC to 1 BC. Despite historical and astronomical evidence to the contrary, a majority of theologians still cling to the belief that Jesus was born prior to the spring of 4 BC. The reason for their insistence on this date is due to a well-known statement by Josephus that King Herod died soon after a lunar eclipse and before a Passover feast in the spring. The problem with this is that there were several lunar eclipses in the general period of Herod's death. According to Ernest Martin, there was actually four total lunar eclipses visible in Judea during this period. 
on March 23rd, 5 BC, on September 15th, 5 BC, on March 13th, uh, 4 BC, and on January 10th, 1 BC. Fortunately, only one of these lunar eclipse dates stands up to scrutiny in the validation of our argued dates for the birth of Jesus, which is September 11th, 3 BC. Now you know, by the way, why they coordinated whatever happened on September 11th. But anyway, that's another can of worms. And for the visit of the Magi 15 months later, December 25th, 2 BC. The lunar eclipse of January 10th, 1 BC is the best candidate, as discussed in the following sections. Time frame from Herod's death and funeral. Part of the difficulty in determining which lunar eclipse is to be associated with Herod's death had to do with the fact that the amount of time from the lunar eclipse prior to Herod's death to his funeral had to be sufficient to support the planning and activities related to his funeral. That makes sense. On the other hand, the lunar eclipse and his death could not be too far removed from Passover because Josephus specifically mentioned that Herod's death was before a Passover. Although, do, although Josephus does not provide the precise number of days from the lunar eclipse to the next Passover, this period can be estimated fairly easily. And it is fairly easy to estimate the amount of time required for each of the activities related to Herod's death and funeral. Ernest Martin estimates that a total of 10 to 12 weeks would be required for the events associated with the death and funeral. Consequently, almost three months would be required from the time of the lunar eclipse until the following Passover in order to complete all of the funeral-related activities. Accordingly, Ernest, Martin's determined, Ernest Martin determined that the best estimated estimate for Herod's death is January 28th, 1 BC. This fits all the chronological parameters, including Josephus' statement about his death being soon after a lunar eclipse, which was January 10th, 1 BC, and before a Passover, which at that point would have been a couple months before a Passover. This date is one of the undesignated festival days of the Jews and mentioned the Megaleth Tanit, a Jewish document referred to as the Scroll of Fasting. As further con confirmation of the estimated date of Herod's death, one of the dates mentioned in the Megaleth Tan, which dates back to the destruction of Jerusalem AD 70, is Shabbat II, which we noted previously corresponds to January 28th, 1 BC. On this date, the Jews apparently celebrated the death of Herod as Herod was hated by the Jews. In fact, Josephus stated that just before Herod died, he said, I know that the Jews will celebrate my death by a festival. Turns out he was right. So this confirms that Herod's death was much later than common consensus has been saying it is. The Missing War, the War of Varus. Who has heard of the War of Varus, a major conflict which occurred within the dark decade of 6 BC to 84? Most people have not. The war was long a mystery to historians because they could not find it in historical Roman records. They could not find this war, which was fought in Judea between the Jews and the Romans, because they tried to place it three years before it actually happened. They got it wrong because they got the death of Herod and other events wrong. They incorrectly assumed that the war was fought in 4 BC rather than early in 81. According to Ernest Martin, with a proper understanding of the actual dates of the birth of Jesus, which is September 11th, 3 BC, the visit of the Magi in December 25th, 2 BC, and the death of Herod, January 28th, 1 BC, it is now possible to corroborate various Roman documents that mention not only this war, but other historical events. As reported by Ernest Martin, the War of Varus was no small skirmish. 
Rome brought in an estimated 20,000 troops from Syria, in addition to support personnel. It has been described as one of the most serious military operations to occur in Palestine between the time of Pompeii, which is 63 BC, and the Roman-Jewish War of AD 66 and 73, where the temple was destroyed. So, pretty significant event, but they missed it because they were, again, misinterpreting the death of Herod, and therefore plotting Jesus' life incorrectly as well. According to Ernest Martin, the war took place in Galilee, Judea, Idumea, and began a little over two months after the death of Herod in January 1st, B.C. The war took place in the spring and summer of the year of Herod's death, which was 1 B.C. Josephus stated that the war of Varus was directly against the Jews by Quintilius Varus, the Roman governor of Syria, and the namesake of the conflict. The final mopping up of the war occurred in Idumea, the southern part of Herod's kingdom, by Gaius Caesar, the grandson of Augustus, who was sent to the region to help Varus with the war effort. This was in the autumn of 1 BC. The war was fought because of three specific events, Herod's death, the killing of the two influential rabbis by Herod immediately before his death, and a Jewish rebellion and subsequent Passover massacre by government troops. According to Josephus, the conflict began when two influential rabbis falsely believed that Herod had died on December 5th, 2 BC, and encouraged a number of young men to destroy a golden eagle which Herod had placed over the eastern gate of the temple. The placement of the eagle was contrary to the law of Moses. The young men and the two rabbis were tried and sentenced by Herod in Jericho. The young men were given lighter sentences, but the two rabbis were ordered to be burned alive on Friday, January 9th, 1st BC, to correspond with the lunar eclipse which was predicted to occur the night of January 10th, 1 BC. According to Ernest Martin, Herod had been advised to delay the execution of a few nights to align with the pending lunar eclipse so that he could present the eclipse as an astronomical evidence to the people that even God was frowning on the actions of the two rabbis. So they tried to time the eclipse with the assassination of the rabbis so that they could show that, you know, this was an act of God. At the Passover following the deaths of the esteemed rabbis, a riot erupted among the Jewish people. According to Josephus in his writing Antiquities, Archelaus, the successor of Herod, ordered 3,000 Jewish worshippers to be slaughtered in the temple precincts. The the riot and subsequent massacre resulted in the highly unusual cancellation of Passover services, something which had never happened before occurred in Jewish history. The slaughter of the worshippers in the temple led directly to the War of Varus during the summer and autumn of 1 BC. Ernest Martin reported that in addition to those killed in the war, 2,000 Jews were subsequently crucified and 30,000 were sold into slavery following the war. The eclipse of January 10th, 1 BC was long remembered by the Jewish people not only because of Herod's death, which closely followed the eclipse, but also because of the execution of the two rabbis, the massacre of the 3,000 Jews, and the ensuing war of Varus. All these events occurred in 1 BC. The records on the eclipse, Roman historical records for the time, and the written accounts of Josephus are all in agreement as to these events and dates. So that's all pretty significant. It's pretty significant because, again, it's just another thing that points to 27 AD. If Jesus was born in 3 BC, which he was, then in 27 AD, with all those other times since we looked at when his ministry began, he was indeed about 30. That's what Luke testifies, that he was about 30. 3 BC to 27 AD is about 30. So 
It's very interesting how it all lines up so perfectly if you just study and if you look through through history and you look at the deep, because you really have to dig deep. Remember, all these calendars and ways of keeping time were very different than they are now. And again, I'll link this stuff about Jesus being born in 3 BC. He was born on September 11th, which at the time was a Tishri. He's a New Year baby. Christ was born at the first of the year. He was a New Year baby, meaning the New Year, New Life, that's when he was born. For us, it would have been September 11th if we count backward. But again, you know, I have to be careful with proleptic calendars. Nevertheless, now you know why they try to associate that date with such fear and negativity and evil. That's what they do with everything. They do that with the Resurrection Day in April, April Fool's. April 1st is probably when Jesus resurrected. And ultimately, they try to associate that with foolishness, as you can see. Our entire system, you know, Daniel, the book of Daniel says that the Antichrist power will change times and laws. And this is part of it. So just be, have discernment, be wary. But the point is this, Jesus was about 30 during Tiberius, Pilate, the Herod renovations, all these things align perfectly. Jesus was born September 3rd. It aligns completely perfectly with all of these other dates. Now, if you say that Jesus was born 4 B.C., it doesn't work with all the things we've already established. So you see how it all just comes together like, like a really neat like jigsaw puzzle? And that's really the point. Now, we still have two more verses to go. This night, verse 26 and verse 27. I want to look at verse 26 because now it talks about we've pinpointed Jesus' ministry. We've pinpointed the beginning of the, the decree, which is 457 to 27 AD. Now we got to look at the last week. Futurists and dispensationalists believe that the last week, the 70th week, is in the future. And it hasn't happened yet. It's, it's when the tribulation is going to start. But we know there's no rapture. We know that the millennial is now. There's no millennial kingdom in the future. Satan's been bound. The temple is a spiritual reality of the church. It's not some physical temple that's being rebuilt. All these things are, are deceptions. And so you can't look at this now and say, well, this makes sense. Of course it doesn't make sense because dispensationalism has been pretty much disproven, but we're going to look at how even this disproves it even more. Now, dispensationalists are right about the prophecy being a day-to-year principle. They look at it from a year perspective, but then they make a gap between the, the 69th week, meaning when Jesus starts his ministry, and the 70th week. They insert this gap, which really just makes no sense. And for good reason, because... It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, now let's actually look at KJV because ESV is very silly, but actually let's compare these two. Look at the two readings. This is verse 26 of chapter nine in Daniel. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. That's a very key statement. Remember that. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end there shall be with a flood, and unto the end the war, and and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So there's gonna be a war, there's gonna see some people are gonna come and destroy the sanctuary, and after three score and two weeks, so after three and a half weeks, there the Messiah will be cut off. But not for himself. What does that mean? Well, if weeks are years after three and a half years, what happened to Jesus? He got crucified, but not for himself, for the people he was dying for, which is you and me. So this is 
portraying the first three and a half years of his ministry. After three and a half years, he'll be cut off. And that's to the letter. That's exact. Now, if we look at the ESV, look at this. Look at the reading, that it, the way it's translated. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war, desolations of the decree. So not bad. But then really the part I want to focus on is this. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Like it doesn't, it's not as precise as the KJV where it says, the, the Messiah, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. This is a sacrificial situation. And when it says, it's, and he shall have nothing, you can't really tell what's going on as much as the other one. But what what happened here? Well, the people of the prince to come, who was the prince to come? That's Titus, who ended up destroying the temple in AD 70. Remember, there's the this very significant war between AD 66 and AD 70, where the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and that was prophesied in this prophecy. Now, dispensationalists will say that the, the people of the prince to come, it's a future antichrist. He's going he's gonna to come and it's a future antichrist that hasn't come yet and he's going to destroy the temple. But let's, let's think about this very clearly. Okay. The people of the prince to come. The prince is the Roman Empire. These are the people that are coming. Okay. And fuck, I'm off. The people who are going to destroy the temple, which is a historical thing that happened. Jerusalem fell in AD 70. The whole war was between AD 66 and AD 70. That's when the temple was destroyed. That's something that happened. So the people of the prince to come, that they destroyed the temple. We know that that's anchored in reality. If the prince to come is a future antichrist, how can the prince be separated from his people by thousands of years? doesn't make any sense, right? We know that the people destroyed the sanctuary in AD 70. But if this is talking about a future Antichrist, then it doesn't make any sense. Nobody's going to come 2,000 years later and say, oh yeah, those are my people. They destroyed the sanctuary. See how that doesn't make any sense? But that's dispensational reading, it, that this is about the Antichrist or that there is some revived Roman Empire. There's no revived Roman Empire. There's no Roman Empire left. There are the European nations that have tried to become a, a union. Remember the, the statue of Daniel, which we'll get into at the very end, talks about the iron mixed with clay. They've tried to mix and make a union, but it's failed, and it will not succeed. They're, they're divided, and they'll be continue to be divided. So there is no revived Holy Roman Empire that's coming back. The Holy Roman Empire ended a long time ago, and... It's not coming back. So that's an incorrect reading. Now, the confusing thing with verse 26 is this, that it it talks about the first part, the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. He's getting cut off, okay? He's getting cut off three and a half weeks into this last 
week, uh, into the 70th week. And then it zooms out. It zooms out and it gives you this perspective of, well, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and there's going to be desolation and all these things that are happening. So the question is, is this is 70 AD not in the 70th week? Like, is there a gap there that's happening? What's going on here? Well, what's going on is a literary device. This happens throughout the Bible where there's a specific thing being talked about. And then there's a zoom out perspective. Then it comes back and zooms in and recapitulates what was just being talked about. This has happened so many times, both in Revelation and in the book of uh, Daniel and other prophetic texts too. Even in Genesis, remember I talked of the pre-Adamic age and the two creations and all these conspiracy theologies that are going on in the internet. People believe that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are accounts of two different creation stories where Genesis 1 is like maybe some different humans or pre-Adamic age, and then Genesis 2 is like actual Adam and Eve. But that actually doesn't make any sense if you understand literary devices and how literature was being crafted in the Middle East, in the Near East, and what what literally to, literary tools people were using. And one of them is this idea of zooming out, zooming in, recapitulating what you just talked about, but from a different perspective. That's what's happening in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is like a bird's eye view. God did this on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day. It's just listing it off. And then Genesis 2 goes back to the sixth day and gets a zoomed-in perspective of God creating man. And it gives it more narrative perspective rather than kind of numerical, chronological. And so you can't look at these as two different creation narratives. That's nonsense. Nobody in their right mind would actually believe that if they're studying the Bible with the intent to find the truth. If you're studying the Bible with the intent to confirm your own, you know, bogus theories, then yeah, you'll find all kinds of stuff. So in the same spirit of this recapitulation and zooming out, zooming in, this is what's happening here with verse 26. He's talking about the Messiah getting cut off, and then the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end shall be thereof with a flood. And so it's it's not talking about something that's happening chronologically one right after the other. It's happening about an event, then zoom out. Oh, they're going to be a, there's the temple's going to be destroyed. Now, why was the temple destroyed? Well, God was punishing the Jews for rejecting the Messiah. That's why. And they haven't built it. Again, they're trying to build it now, but you know, we'll see how that goes. The point is this. This is talking about what is happening as a result of them, as of the result of the Messiah getting cut off and rejected. The temple's going to get destroyed. Jerusalem's going to get judged. And that happened in 70 AD. Now, Daniel 27, 9 verse 27, picks this back up. And it it speaks back into what the Messiah is doing during his time on the earth. And it, it goes like this. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and the determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So again, it sounds like kind of difficult language, but let's compare these two verses. In verse 26, and after three score and two weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. So after 62 weeks, meaning that the last, the last section of this time, the Messiah is going to cut off. When does he get cut off? Well, that's specified in Daniel 9.27. 
And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So the, the causing of the sacrifice and the oblation to cease happens in the midst of the week, in the final week, right? Three and a half years. A week is seven years. In the midst of the week is three and a half years. It's the final week. And that causing of sacrificing to end is being cut off, which is talked about in verse 26 previously. So it's repeating what he just said, but in a more specific way. Messiah will be cut off. That's going to happen in the midst of the week. Now, the grave error that dispensationalists do, and please don't fall for this error, is that they see nine verse, verse uh, chapter 9, verse 27, about the Antichrist. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. They think that the Antichrist is going to confirm some peace covenant with the Jews, and in the midst of the week, meaning three and a half years later, he's going to break that covenant, and he's going to cause the sacrifice in the temple that's going to be rebuilt, a physical temple that's being rebuilt, He's going to cause the sacrifices to end and he's going to betray the covenant and, you know, there's going to be a war and all this kind of stuff. That's a literal futurist, Jesuit, fleshly, worldly interpretation. Remember, the temple is the body of Christ. It's a spiritual reality, which is the church. It's the fellowship of people who believe in Jesus. That was very clear from the episode on the temple that we did. There's nowhere in scripture that it says there will be a physical third temple being rebuilt as a sign that that's Bible prophecy. That's an engineered false prophecy to make you fall for whatever they're going to do next with it. That's number one. So that has to be rejected outright. The one who confirmed the covenant is Jesus. This is about Jesus. First off, who is it talking about? And the Messiah shall be cut off in verse 26. And after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And it talks about what's going to happen afterward. Jerusalem will get destroyed. And he shall confirm the covenant with many. Who is he? Suddenly we're switching gears and talking about the Antichrist? No, we're talking about the Messiah. He is referring to the Messiah. And so this is, this is a major deception that dispensationalists believe that this is about the Antichrist. Who is the person that confirmed the, the covenant, the covenant of the, the new covenant? Well, we know, Matthew 26, verse 28. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink henceforth this vine until that when I drink of it with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the new covenant, is the covenant of grace that Jesus inaugurated at the Last Supper, with his crucifixion, with the atonement, with all the things that happen in short succession right in that middle of that prophetic week, three and a half years, which is AD 31. So fall of AD 27 was when he got baptized. He was about 30. Or yeah, he got baptized and anointed. Three and a half years later is spring of AD 31. That's when he was crucified. We'll look at all this in a little more detail. But he, in this verse in Daniel 9, 27, is not the Antichrist. He is the Messiah. The covenant with many is the covenant that was with Abraham, with Adam, with Noah, with Moses, with David. The covenant that had been promised for so many years. 
That was the covenant of grace through the Messiah. It's referring to him. We also know that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7 through 10, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Then said I, lo, behold, come. I'm going to read this in ESV. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above you, have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, meaning the sacrificial system, in order to establish the second, which is the system of grace. Hebrews 10, verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It's very clear that Jesus put the end to the sacrifices. He's the one who put the end to the sacrifices. It was the sacrificial system that was coming to the end. Why on earth would God allow or or prophesy a third temple to be rebuilt where there's sacrifices being done and then the Antichrist has to come and put away an end to those sacrifices? Do you see how this takes your attention off of grace, off of the gospel, off of the truth, and puts it on to what's happening in Israel? Let's watch Israel and all this worldly, fleshly stuff so that you miss who the real Antichrist power is, who the one who has entered the temple and proclaimed himself to be God. Spiritually, which is the papacy, the Pope has already been doing that. The Pope's plural have proclaimed himself to be God in the temple, which is the church of believers. They have taken over and created an entire beast system which we'll get into and unpack in future episodes. But the, Christ was the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that put an end to temple sacrifices. The temple curtain tore when Christ was crucified. That's a more obvious sign than anything that the sacrifices were put an end to. And Hebrews talks about the curtain of his flesh being how we access God in the past. It was the curtain separated man. Now the curtain was torn in two, just like, the curtain of Christ's flesh was torn so that we could have access to God. And that's something that is hidden to your eyes if you're looking for physical, literal things like dispensationalists look for. You know, the Jews kept sacrificing after Jesus died. So what was that? That was the overspreading of abominations that verse 27 speaks about. They kept sacrificing over and over after that instead of realizing and accepting the Messiah. And because of that, they were judged. 40 years later, or whatever it was, a little less than 40, they basically, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. Now, I want to address this idea of the dispensationalist gap, which is, the again, the idea that the 69 weeks lead up to the day of the Messiah being coming on the scene, but then the 70th week somehow has to deal with the Antichrist and a future literal temple. Just hopefully you've seen so far that this is nonsense. But the gap theory is very popular. So I'm going to look at this article by Sam Storms. Uh, it's called Daniel's 70, Daniel's 70 Weeks. A couple things in here that I want to read to you. When exactly will the 70th week begin? The dispensationalist says that according to verse 26... Two events will occur after the 69th week, but before the 70th. In other words, these two events will occur in the gap between the 69th and 70th weeks. These two events are, first, the cutting off of the Messiah, the crucifixion. The second, the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD. 
When then is the 70th week going to occur? Only at the end of the present age when Christ returns to commemorate or consummate the sixfold purpose outlined in verse 24. This 70th week, the so-called Great Tribulation, says the dispensationalist, is described in verse 27. So this is what dispensationalists think, but is it correct? The answer is absolutely not. It goes on to say, who is the coming prince? Dispensationalists believe that this prince is the final antichrist who will appear at the end of the age. However, we are told in verse 26, the city and sanctuary are to be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. The dispensationalists rightly insist that this refers to the Roman armies of 70 AD, of course. But the prince, says the dispensationalist, to whom these armies or people belong, was not Titus, the Roman general, but a prince who is to arise from a revived Roman Empire conceivably 2,000 years after the people had died. Young responds, Now it is impossible thus to speak of the Roman armies who attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. These armies cannot be said to belong to a prince who has not even now appeared, although nearly 2,000 years have passed. The genitival relationship, as in people of a prince, shows clearly that the people and prince are contemporaries, meaning they're at the same time. The people belong to the prince. They are his people. Now, how can the Romans of 70 AD be said to belong to a prince who has not yet appeared? They are not his people. They belong to a prince who is their contemporary. Suppose that this prince should appear upon the scene of history. He cannot look back to the armies of Titus and call them his armies. To take a modern example, Mussolini could not have spoken of the armies of Titus as being his own armies. The very language itself rules out this interpretation. Are verses 26 and 27 sequentially related, or are they parallel descriptions of the same events? This is what we were just talking about. Parallelism, recapitulation, all these literary devices. The dispensation's argument for a gap between 69th and 70th weeks is based on the belief that verses 26 and 27 are phrased in a modern style of prose that describes events in a strictly sequential and chronological order. But a close examination of these two verses reveals that they are structural in the structured in the poetic style of synonymous or perhaps synthetic parallelism in which the 27th verse repeats and elaborates the content of the 26th verse. This is just what we were talking about. The dispensationalist insists there is a gap between verse 26 and 27. Why is this not true? The principal reason has just been given. Verse 26 and 27 are not relating events that are sequential, in other words, A, B, C, D, but rather parallel, A, B, A, B. So it's telling about one thing and then, you know, coming back and saying another. Now, a couple more points. Jeremiah's 70 years on the pattern of which Daniel's 70 weeks were constructed admit of no gap. So there's no gap in Jeremiah's 70 years of captivity to Babylon, and there's no gap in other prophecies. So why would there be a gap in this prophecy? especially a gap that's just so monstrous. There is no gap between the 70 weeks, sorry, between the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, verse 25, making it unlikely for there to be a gap between the 69 weeks, the seven divided by the 62, and the 70th week. So there's no gap in anywhere before in this prophecy, so why would there be a gap at the end? That's really what it's saying. After examining other cases in which prophecy refers to determinate specification of time, Philip Morrow concludes, we are, to, we are bold, therefore, to lay it down as an absolute rule, admitting of no exceptions, 
that when a definite measure of time or space is specified by the number of units composing it, within which certain events is to happen or a certain thing is to be found, the unit of time or space which make up that measure are to be understood as running continuously and successively. 70 years would invariably mean 70 continuous years. 70 weeks would mean 70 continuous weeks. 70 miles would mean 70 continuous miles. Assuming for the sake of argument that 490 units of time equals 490 literal years, consider this. Is it credible that this prophecy, which speaks so definitely of 70 weeks and then subdivides 70 into 7 and 62 and 1, should require for its correct interpretation that an interval be discovered between the last two of the weeks far longer than the entire period covered by the prophecy itself? If the 69 weeks are exactly 483 consecutive years, exact to the very day, which they are, and we prove that, and if the one week is to be exactly seven consecutive years, is it credible that an interval which is already more than 1,900 years, nearly four times as long as the period covered by the prophecy, is to be introduced into it and allowed to interrupt its fulfillment? The answer is no, it's not. This is absolute nonsense. Now, I want to read another thing I highlighted here, which is indicative of some of the things I've mentioned before, that Sam Storms, this guy has some good stuff, but he's an amillennial. And so the amillennial position is more spiritualizing. And I highlighted something here that's kind of related, not exactly related to this, but it's talking about the Babylonian captivity. Are the 70 weeks to be interpreted chronologically or theologically? This is a spiritual interpretation. We are immediately made aware that 70 weeks are probably not to be taken with chronological precision for the fact that the 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy were not precisely 70 years. Hmm, we'll look at that. The fall of Babylon by which the end conclusion of Jeremiah's prophecy is reached occurred in 539 BC. There are several suggested beginning points of the prophecy, none of which, however, add up to precisely 70 years. So there's there's some things he outlines here, and the argument is Again, if you're an all-millennial, most of the time you will spiritualize numbers and say, oh, they're not exact. They're more like, you know, they, they mean symbols. It's seven times 10. Seven is completion. 10 is completion. If you multiply by each other and it means, you know, all these different things. So why is this important? Well, the time period of the 70 years is actually exact. And it just shows a lack of concern for history or a lack of due diligence on researching history, and we'll we'll prove that, and we'll look at an article from uh, this. Let's see, what's it what's it called? It's called Theology in Three D BJU Seminary. So, was it seventy years or not? This is the title of the article. The biblical and historical data leave the door open here because we don't know exactly when the Israelites actually returned to the land. But nobody, not even Merrill, thinks the return happened in five thirty nine. That means we have to pay close attention to the details of the prophecy themselves because several passages reference a 70-year period and they don't all describe it in exactly the same terms. Jeremiah 25, 9-13. This prophecy came to Jeremiah in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's first year and the beginning of Judah's phased exile to Babylon. It specifies that Judah and the surrounding nations would serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Everyone agrees Babylon's terminal year was 539 BC, but what year marks the commencement of Babylon's regional hegemony? That's what this prophecy describes, after all. Babylon, with all its allies, destroyed the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, in 612. 
when the Assyrians relocated their capital in Haran, Babylonian king Nabopolassar conquered it as well, successfully resisting an Assyrian counterattack, decisively driving them beyond the Euphrates, and effectively effectively ending Assyrian dominance in the region in 609 BC. For all practical purposes, that's when Babylon, Babylon became the new dominant world power. That means that when the prophecy was given in 605, the 70 years was already underway. No problem. We know that Jeremiah's next 70-year prophecy, which is in Jeremiah 29, came after that prophetic time clock had already commenced ticking. So when did the seven years of Jeremiah 25 commence? The language of Jeremiah 25.12 allows some flexibility. Judgment on Babylon would come when or even after the 70 years are completed. That allows a starting point of either 609 or possibly even 612. In either case, it is at least a full 70 years. Now, there's some other prophecies that he goes over, but I'm going to jump to the one in 2 Chronicles 36. The author of Chronicles, which is possibly Ezra, provides a theological explanation for Judah's exile to Babylon. The captivity fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths 70 years. This specifically marks the beginning of the 70 years at 605 BC, since it makes reference to the beginning of Judah's captivity. But again, when did it end? Clearly, whenever the Jews actually returned to the land. Cyrus took Babylon in 539 BC. The official first year of Cyrus was 538. That was when the year he announced his repatriation policy with the temple that we just covered. But when we're not, what we're not told in any historical record that I'm aware of is exactly when in Cyrus's first year the decree promulgated. How long did the Jews' preparations take? How long did the Jews' return uh, their return journey take? And therefore, how exactly when did the Jews arrive in Judah? The task of return was a monumental one. The preparations for uprooting after 70 years was time-consuming and, you know, very time-consuming endeavors. Homes to sell, businesses to liquidate, caravans to organize, temple furniture to catalog and pack, and livestock and provisions to gather for a thousand-mile journey back. If Cyrus's decree was promulgated in late 538, allowing eight or nine months of preparation and four to five months for actual journey based on Ezra's later journey, an actual arrival early in 536 is entirely feasible. Counting inclusively from 605, that's exactly 70 years. Conclusion. So there's a lot in this article. Again, these are all scholarly articles. I highly encourage you to read them, but the data seem to indicate the possibility of three overlapping but distinct 70-year prophecies. 70 years of Babylonian dominion over Judah and the surrounding nations, which was from 609 to 539. 70 years of Jewish captivity in Babylon from 605 to 536. 70 years of indignation on Jerusalem and Judah. 586 to 516, marked by the destruction and rebuilding of the temple. So what is the point of this article, why I decided to cite it for you, is that Sam Storms, in his assessment that, oh, it's not exact, it's not so exactly 70 years, he's wrong. Even though he's a great scholar and he he does some great job with, with the article that I did read, you have to read multiple authors, multiple perspectives, because when it comes to history, you need to read the details. It's very complicated. History is a very complex thing because of the many uh, testimonies there are, and, and you have to piece together a time period as we're doing in this episode. Hopefully you, you've seen how all this works. 
It's a very detailed process, and that's why it's not so popular anymore. The, to looking at the Bible prophecy from a historical lens is not so popular because it's very difficult, and it requires a lot of study. And people just prefer to say, "Well, God's not doesn't care about specific dates. You know, He's not limited by specific times. These are just symbolic numbers. They just mean, you know." Well, first off, you ignore the beauty of God's sovereignty when you do that. You also get lost in history. It's very easy to appropriate anything to make it mean anything uh, when, when you look at numbers, you know, in a symbolic way. And again, why would God give specific to, he's so specific about everything. You look at the instructions for the temple stuff. You look at the instructions for the sanctuary. You look at instructions for sacrifice. Everything God has given as an instruction is extremely specific. He, every time he gives a time prophecy, he's extremely precise and specific. So do you think it, like those things don't matter to him? No, of course not. That proves, prophecy proves that God is in charge. And when we look at history, it's true. Prophecy proves that God is in charge because everything does happen exactly as God said. So was it 70 years or not? Yes, it was 70 years, Sam Storms. It was 70 years. And uh, that means that prophecies can be read historically. We don't have to allegorize and symbolize everything. We can read it historically, and we're right for doing that because it helps us see where we are in history. So Daniel 70 weeks is consistent with everything else in the Bible. Now, the crucifixion date. If Jesus' ministry began in 27 AD, then according to Daniel, three and a half years, so three and a half days, halfway through the week, the final week, the crucifixion should be 31 AD. Now, is that true? Well, people say he was crucified in 30 AD because there's only three Passovers in the gospel accounts. But believe it or not, there's actually four Passovers, which would make sense because that means the prophecy is exactly true. Three and a half years he ministered, and three and a half after three and a half years, which was halfway through that final week, he was crucified exactly as the prophecy said. Everything up until this point has been exact. There's no difference. But we have to do a little digging to see that there's four Passovers because it's not immediately obvious. So I pull up this article on the four Passovers in Jesus' public ministry. Again, all these are um, going to be linked. I hope to prove that the missing Passover is that of AD 30, which is when most people say he was crucified. So the Passovers of John Chapter 2, verse 13, John chapter 6, verse 4, occurred in 28 and 29, respectively. Many Christians believe Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, refers to his going to Jerusalem to die. But this isn't so. Notice that when compared with its sister scriptures, Luke chapter 9, 51, verse 51, shows Jesus set his mind to go up to Jerusalem by the farther side of the Jordan, thus coming to Bethany as the Journey to Jerusalem. Therefore, since Jesus Jesus went to Bethany first, which is only a few miles from Jerusalem, his ascension in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, could not have referred to his coming to Jerusalem to die, because all accounts of the Passion Week show Jesus went to Jerusalem first, then to Bethany. After the second Passover in his gospel, John clearly shows Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, but secretly, because the Jerusalem authorities sought his life. Nevertheless, Jesus' journey in Luke chapter 9 was very public. The Samaritans knew his intentions and refused to receive him since he was going to Jerusalem. 
It should be noted that the Samaritans were upset with Jesus because his journey had to do with a special time of celebration, and they felt Jesus was showing a preference for the Jews over them. They were jealous because Jesus intended to celebrate one of the annual Holy Day seasons in Jerusalem rather than with them. Moreover, Jesus sent out the 70 into various towns and villages on the way to Jerusalem, showing it was hardly a secret that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Therefore, Jesus' journey of Luke 9, chapter 9, verse 51, had to have occurred later than John 7, verses 1 through 10. Moreover, Jesus' journey was during a time of harvest, which would would necessitate Jesus' journey to be either immediately prior to the next Passover, following the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, verses 1 through 10, or the Feast of Tabernacles the following year. So, no matter which holy day Jesus intended to observe, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Passover or Tabernacles, it necessitates an additional Passover. Because even if Jesus was celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, a third Passover is implied to have already occurred, since Jesus' journey had to be later than John 7, verses 1 through 10. Jesus often used the surrounding scenery to elucidate a spiritual principle. Therefore, when he says, consider the lilies in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 27, he was speaking of what the people were able to see at that specific time. These lilies were scarlet in color, arrayed more gloriously than the scarlet robes of Solomon. These lilies bloomed from late winter in January to the spring in early May. This indicates that Luke 12.27 and consequently his ascension in Luke 9.51 referred to his coming to Jerusalem to celebrate either the Passover or Pentecost because it was the spring. Since Jesus had already been in Jerusalem by this time, the harvest mentioned in Luke 10, verse 2, must refer to that between Passover and Pentecost. Therefore, the feast that Jesus so publicly made his way to celebrate uh, in Luke 9 and 10, yet slowly so as to spend time with those along the way, could be none other than the Passover. Finally, <clears throat> Luke chapter 13 indicates that Jesus' visit to Jerusalem was during a major Jewish holiday. Pilate's official residence was at Caesarea, However, it was customary for the Roman procurator to travel to and stay at Jerusalem in Herod's palace and officiate the Antonia whenever one of the Jews' three great festival periods occurred. Luke 13 shows itself as a time when Pilate came to Jerusalem, which he did only when a great many pilgrims came to worship at the temple. He did this because of the danger of sedition developing when so great a number of zealous pilgrims gathered in one place. Matthew 25 and Mark 26 testify of this. Luke 13 speaks of an event to which Josephus may also refer to in his Antiquities of the Jews. The fact that Pilate was present in Jerusalem indicates Jesus' visit was during one of the three major festivals, periods in 30 AD. Therefore, Jesus' journey in Luke 9.51 demands an additional Passover season, and Jesus' public ministry lasted three and a half years, making it possible for us to use the prophetic days to refer to Jesus confirming the new covenant with his people, Daniel 9.27. May God quicken his word to the hearts and the minds of his people everywhere. Brilliant scholarship. And ultimately, what does it say? Well, the common understanding, because you have to really dig some of these things, you have to dig a little harder. The common understanding was there are only three Passovers, or two Passovers, sorry. There's only two Passovers, AD 20. 8 and 29, and then he was crucified in 8030. But if that's the case, then 
the time prophecy isn't exact. And so far, everything has been exact. But from the article I just read, and again, you can reference it yourself, there was a third hidden Passover, and that was in AD 30. And then by the next year in AD 31, by the spring, that's when he was crucified on the fourth Passover. And so this is this is why historicism is very difficult, but it's also very valuable because it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is in control of time, of space, of reality. Everything is on point and completely aligned. So how do we how do we put all this together? Well, first and foremost, there's a challenge before we put it all together. And the challenge is that 8031, if you look, if you look back, some people say, oh, it's, it can't be Christ can't be, you know, crucified in 8031 because Nisan 14 in 8031 was a Tuesday. Now, if you remember from some of the stuff I've just talked about with proleptic use of calendars, where you're taking our calendar we use today and you're extending it infinitely in the past and say, oh, you see, Nisan 14 in, you know, 31 AD was, was a Tuesday, so he couldn't have gotten crucified on a Tuesday. Well, it doesn't work that way because, again, before 321 AD, they were using eight-day calendars. Saturday was the first day of the week on some calendars, the Roman calendars. The Hebrews had two different calendars. It was a mess. We don't know. I talked about this in my Sabbath series, in my Sabbath episode, about the, the problems with the proleptic calendar. So anybody who goes and says, oh, see, it's impossible that 31 AD is the crucifixion date because Nisan 14 was a Tuesday well, you're wrong because you can't use a proleptic calendar to count the days. We can count years, but we can't count days because days got lost in translation with all the times that the calendars have been changed. And, and basically, anything before 321 AD, you cannot expect to know what date, or I should say what day it was. That's why in my Sabbath episode, I said, ultimately, we don't know today, what the seventh day of the week was. We don't know what the seventh day of creation was. Now, we use Saturday because that's the biblical, that's as biblical as you can get because it's the seventh day that was, when Constantine officialized the calendar that we use today, basically, in 321 AD, Saturday was the seventh day of the week and Sunday was the first day of the week. Now, the papacy appropriated Sunday for its day of rest and the Jews who went by the Bible I said, this is the seventh day, so we're going to rest on the seventh day. And that's how it remained. The seventh day was Saturday. It's always been Saturday since 321 AD. Now, is it the biblical day of rest, meaning the day that Adam rested? No, it's not. We don't know what that day is. But that doesn't mean that we invent our own day. The seventh day, according to what we're familiar with, is Saturday. And that's the day that we're commanded to rest on, which is the seventh day. Not on the first day, not any day you want because it's the seventh day. It specifically relates to Jesus' death and God resting on the seventh day, being the creator. It's it's all tied together. So when you make up your own day, you say, oh, we can rest whenever because we, we don't know what day it is. Then you're making up your own day and you're changing the law and you shouldn't do that. So anyway, that's a tangent. The point is this. The point is you can't use a proleptic calendar. And anybody saying that 8031 doesn't work because it's a Tuesday, they're wrong because you can't use proleptic calendars. 8031 works perfectly because of all the evidence that we've just presented. 8027 is when Jesus started, three and a half years, which is halfway through the week, the prophetic week. That leads to 8031. So now, 
Let's put it all together. What's the final half of that week look like? What happened there? Well, he had a couple things. But, but let's put it together. AD 27, Jesus starts his ministry. That's the beginning of the, the final week where the Messiah is going to confirm the covenant with many. He's going to put an end to sin and, and bring everlasting righteousness. He's going to, you know, put an end to sacrifices. That's the the the, the final week. That started in AD 27. Three and a half years into that, which is Jesus' ministry, halfway through the week, right? What happened? Messiah was cut off but not for himself, for many. It was a sacrifice. He was sacrificed. A spring that takes us to spring of eighty thirty one. Now there's three and a half years left, and that leads us to eighty thirty four. Eighty thirty four is when this 490-year prophecy ends, from 457 B.C. to eighty thirty four. That's when the 490-year prophecy ends, when the final three, the last half of that final week ends. What happened in 8034? Well, something very significant happened in 8034. Stephen got stoned. The Jews basically finalized their rejection of the gospel, and the gospel went out to the Gentiles, to the nations. Now, we know from Matthew 10 that Jesus told them that everything would happen in Jerusalem first. He told them, this is verse 5 in chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing him, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we know also from Acts, we talked about this several times in the episodes on the church and Pentecost, how Pentecost began the church. Where did that begin? In Jerusalem. That started in Jerusalem after the ascension. And within those first couple of years, People were being converted, but then other people were trying to kill those people. It was, it was a very tumultuous time for the church because the Jews who had rejected Jesus, who were the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they were fighting tooth and nail to prevent the spread of Christianity. And so that kind of culminated in a very significant event, and that was Stephen getting murdered. He was the first martyr to get murdered in 34 AD. And... We know that in Acts 8, that's basically what happens. This is Paul ravaging the church. He's commissioned to persecute and kill the rest of them. And so we know that basically Saul approved his execution. That was Stephen. And then arose that on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men and buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and... Entering the house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Stephen got killed, basically. People got dispersed. This That was like the first situation. Basically, I said, okay, we're done here. This is, we're, we're starting to get killed. We, we're going to run and, and move the gospel out to the nations. And there's a lot of things that confirm this idea that you know, this was a major transition that, that Stephen being martyred was the final nail in the coffin for the Jews being the chosen people. Not only the fact that the prophecy was over, the 490 years that were allotted to to his people, to Daniel's people, was over. That's it. You're no longer the chosen people. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Peter received his vision in Acts 10, his dream about the Gentiles, Peter's vision, 
We know Paul was sent to persecute the church. We just read that, but then he converted and he helped. He was one of the greatest evangelists to bring the gospel to the nations. And remember that also there was an appointed time for everything. The, the appointed time that was given to Daniel was 490 years. That appointed time ended when, when Stephen was stoned. And so that coincides with perfectly with all these other things happening where the Jews, where the apostles ran from the Jews, basically getting persecuted, getting the gospel out to the nations. And also the, the parable of the tenants that Jesus talked about in Matthew 21 verse 43 was very telling. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Very telling that the kingdom was taken, you were, the Jews had their purpose. This is again why dispensationalism fails so hard because it fails to recognize all the history and what it's led up to. The church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The church is the kingdom of God. We proved that abundantly clear in the last few episodes. And I'm not talking about a physical institution. I'm talking about the fellowship of believers, the the invisible organization of believers. It's not a denomination. It's not a building. The church is the temple. It's the body of Christ. It's the kingdom. So that is the fulfillment of all things. Now, another thing that's very interesting is in the Talmud, which is a very antichrist book, but it's a book in Judaism, it confirms this. It gives us another historical clue, and we're going to look at that. It's found in uh, a couple verses, Yoma 39a. Now, let me see if I can find it here. Okay, so... This is Yoma 39a and 39b. Those are the, the places to look it up. This is the Talmud, Babylonian Talmud. The sages taught, during all 40 years that Shimon HaTzadik served as high priest, the lot for God arose in the right hand. From then onward, sometimes it rose in the right hand. Sometimes it rose in the left hand. <clears throat> Furthermore, we'll explain this in a second, but I'm just going to read it. Furthermore, during his tenure as high priest, the strip of the crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat that was sent to Azazel turned white indicating that the sins of the people had been forgiven as it is written. Though your sins are as um, be as crimson, they shall be white as snow. From then onward, it sometimes turned white and sometimes did not turn white. Furthermore, the western lamp of the candelabrum would burn continuously as a sign that God's presence rested upon the nation. From then onward, it sometimes burned and sometimes it went out. So they had, the Jews had a particular tradition where they were doing these things on the Day of Atonement where they would do a scarlet little sash on the goat and, you know, they would cast a lot. And if it fell in the right hand, that means that God had forgiven the sins. So they needed like that, phys- again, physical proof. Judaism is all about physical fleshly things that they have to see it to believe it, right? And so they had all these traditions. That if, if it is eternity, we have a miracle, okay, then God loves us. If not, then no. And so this is a very important thing because it, it, chrono- it, um, documents this period of 40 years after the crucifixion. Pay attention to this because this is fascinating to me. If I can find it here, this is in 39b. Okay. The sages taught, during the tenure of Shimon Hatzik, the lot for God always arose in the high priest's right hand. After his death, 
it occurred only occasionally, but during the 40 years prior to the destruction of the second temple, the lot for God did not arise in the high priest's right hand at all. So too, the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat that was sent to Azazel did not turn white, and the westernmost lamp of the candelabrum did not burn continually. What does that mean to you? Is that a clear sign that your time is up? I mean, think about it. They crucified Jesus, and in the 40 years after the crucifixion, until the destruction of the temple, all the signs that they had relied on, that their sins were forgiven, were were not going through. They're not coming through. As a sign that says, hey, you rejected the offer for grace. Stop trying to sacrifice and do this day of atonement. This is over. All this was pointing to Jesus, who you rejected. So I'm not going to forgive you if if you're trying to earn my forgiveness through sacrifices. Do you see the sign here? This is documented in the Talmud. Now, that's pretty darn clear. That lines up very clearly with the fact that Jesus was crucified in 31 AD. That's historical. Stephen was stoned, and then the gospel went out to the nations. Stephen, The stoning of Stephen 34 AD ended the period of the 490 years that was allotted for the Jewish people to basically bring forth the Messiah, and the Messiah would then bring the promise to all the nations. So why is this important? Well, (laughs) remember that Israel rejected God as their king. They rejected God as their king in Samuel. They rejected Jesus as king when they were crucifying him. We have no king but Caesar. And Jesus lamented how I would have gathered you, but you refused. You know, Judaism currently is rebellion. The true continuation of the Old Testament is Christianity. Judaism today has nothing in common with Hebrewism because it rejected the Messiah. It added a bunch of works and other customs and traditions of the Pharisees and rabbis that have nothing to do with the Bible onto whatever was left, and then they created their own hybrid religion that stands in rebellion to God's word. As much as they want to claim that they're a continuation of the Old Testament, they really aren't. There's a lot of things, even Passover, how it's celebrated, is completely differently celebrated than how it was celebrated in the times of Jesus. And so we have to have discernment. We have to have discernment. What are some final thoughts on this? Daniel 70 weeks lines up exactly with the years of Jesus' life. Now, it takes research and it takes being detail-oriented to really look at the facts and at the history, but it lines up perfectly with Christ's life. The 70th week is Christ's ministry. It's not the Antichrist. Do you see what the devil's done there? Not only has he taken your eyes off of spiritual reality, so you don't guess who the real beast is, because if if you get Daniel wrong, then you're going to get all the other prophecies wrong. You're going to read them completely wrong, and you're not going to see who the real Antichrist power is. So he's done that to deceive. But on top of that, he's also taken the one week that's about Christ's ministry, and he's made it about himself, about the Antichrist. So this is just typical satanic inversion. That's why dispensationalism is a lie. Futurism is a deception. You're being deceived if you believe such a thing. The 70th week is about Christ's ministry. It's not about the Antichrist. We know that the 70th week encompassed the beginning, which was the 27 AD start date. Christ was crucified at the middle of the week on 31 AD. 
And the end, of, the end of the week, which is the end of the whole prophecy, was 34 AD, three and a half years later, when Stephen got stoned. And everybody was dispersed. Peter had his vision. Saul got converted. It was time. The, the time of the Jews as being the chosen people was over. It was time for the Gentiles and everybody to be welcomed into the church, into the reality that God had preplanned from the beginning of time. That was the whole reality, was the reality we have now through Christ fellowship with one another. There is no separate plan of salvation for the Jews, and God wants them to build a temple where they're going to sacrifice again. This is nonsense. Total nonsense. But this prophecy is very important, and I know we've spent a lot of time on it, but it proves the day your principle is the truth. As you can plainly see, it works out absolutely perfectly, and as a result, it unlocks the rest of the time prophecies, which is what we're going to be focusing on in future episodes. It unlocks the 1260-day prophecies in both Daniel and Revelation, 2300-day you know, prophecies. All these are year-long prophecies. And when we see their fulfillment in history, um, it's pretty profound. It really is. But the point is this. Dispensationalism is wrong in their theology yet again. So if you believe that, if you know anybody that believes that, I hope that you've learned differently. If if futurism is wrong, let's ask another question. If futurism is wrong, then who is the Antichrist? If the Antichrist is not some future charming guy that's going to step into a physical temple, then who is the Antichrist? Well, we'll explore that in future episodes, but it's a spiritual reality that is much more profound and much more evidenced by history. History that the Antichrist wants you to ignore instead of you know looking at the future and trying to look for all these fleshy, worldly things and give money to Israel to build another temple, they want you to do that instead of seeing the truth through history. But look, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. So we must keep our eyes open, my friends, and have discernment. I know this episode has been very long. It's been a workout for me to present it to you. I'm going to leave all the resources in the, com- in the description for the episode, if you want to document yourself further. Like I said, I wanted to make all of this into one episode because it's it's all tied together. I want you to get all these dates and ideas. I don't care that you memorize everything. I just want you to see that God's Word is exact and it's precise and it's beautiful the way it is. And history proves that, but we have to do a little digging and research. And we will do that in future episodes. We'll look at history and I hope that you will learn something out of it. I'm very passionate about history. I think it's very interesting uh, because it's fun to see where we're at in history, and it's fun to see, wow, like, yeah, God said something, and it did come true. Of course it would. Of course it would. So I hope this episode has been a blessing for you. I hope you've learned something, and certainly I hope that uh, it gives you some discernment so you aren't fooled by this whole idea of a future 70th week that still needs to happen, about an antichrist stepping into the temple and, uh, canceling a peace covenant in three and a half years. This is all nonsense. All that was written about Jesus. Now, again, they're trying to fulfill this fleshy, worldly interpretation to bring about a massive deception, possibly a false Christ, possibly a false millennial kingdom. So we have to keep our eyes. When we see these things on the news, like, oh, there's a covenant of peace and, you know, whatever for seven years, like, this is being programmed and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So keep your eyes open, stay strong, and God bless. We'll see you next time.